Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's The Podcast, dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swain. <gasps> oh, he just ran in. I just ran in, and boy, are my runners tired. And my, and my peepers, because I've been reading, and I'm thrilled to be here. We're a very physical group of hosts, if you I... don't know that. Need a catchphrase like yours because I'm totally self-conscious about, what do I, soon soon there's something, there's a moment where I'm supposed to say something, and I usually just make a barnyard noise. That's what ends up coming out. Yeah, works for me. Okay, great. Then we'll keep going with that. (laughs) Awesome. Today's episode is about Cat's Cradle, an amazing novel, and we've been talking with you guys about Mother Night, our previous episode, Mm. and about this book, and about everything else Kurt Vonnegut. I feel like we can jump into a kind of new segment, but we, we did a lot the last episode. We're calling it From the Group. Whoa! <laughs> good luck finding a good music that meshes well with that, Brett. USOB. Uh, that I was, that was, was me simulating like my breakneck whiplash that we're already into a segment. My God. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're just cooking with gas and fire. I thought you were like, I need to do my vocal warm-ups now. <laughs> yeah, no. I need to stretch I, I clearly this, these pipes out. Some deep desire to make weird noises today. <laughs> but yeah, we're it's super great. grateful to everyone on... I mostly hang out and write my longest stuff on the Facebook page, Yeah, which you can find by just typing Kurt Vonnegut into the thing. I mostly tweet at people because yes. my attention span is the tiniest. And then That's we dip our adorable little fingers in each other's pies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And some Instagram comments and SoundCloud. Instagram and exists. Talk to us everywhere. I got to be honest, I haven't been on the Instagram because I don't Instagram. It's great. How's it people going? friendly. Nice. Good. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And SoundCloud yeah. too. People are, have been chill. Well, yeah. And I just wanted to say, yeah, a big part of this for us is finding a whole group to talk about Vonnegut with. A ton of people post things i will have better ones next time because i would love to always do this segment yeah but people post amazing insights or theories that we didn't have time to get into or did yeah. not notice because there's only two of us and we're not that bright so uh his name's scott harris he's a friend of ours on facebook shout uh, out and he messaged us with a fan theory about mother night uh our previous episode and his fan theory is that frank Wertanen is a nazi like he's a double agent for the Nazis oh boy. in the American government. And so the whole time where Tannen is having Howard W. Campbell do stuff that's way more valuable to the Nazis than to the Americans. But his, he's played by John Goodman. And as we know, uh, Vonnegut embeds them within the name. Is that a stretch? <laughs> I can't no, let yeah. the book be that depressing, man. Theory falls apart. Theory <laughs> no, falls yeah. apart. There you go. But it's like when they redid The Mist... Double spoiler alert, the Stephen King book that ends with them driving off into the mist and you don't know what happens. Right. (laughs) With him shooting his kid in the head (laughs) and running out of bullets so he can't kill himself. And that second, the mist is defeated and the monsters are all dead. And like, if he had not shot his kid for 30 seconds, everything would have been fine. I haven't read it, but I've only seen the movie. Uh, Yeah, so you remember. It's a ripper. Oh, man. Analogous. But well, and, yeah. and one of my one of my favorite things about this theory is that it means that when Wirtanen asks Howard, like, what would you have done if the Americans won? Frank is doing what he would have done if the Americans won. You know what I mean? He's like well, a Nazi agent everything. who worked for the yeah. Americans. And he's like, oh, the Americans won? Great. I was an American agent the whole time. Great. That novel is so nested on pretensions within pretensions. It's totally believable. And I could also see like... 
Yeah, but at yeah. that point, it would be thematically fitting for everyone in the book to rip rubber masks off and be like, we're actually <laughs> the Bananaramas. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it would still fit into the theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we yeah. can't get dragged backward into night. I think we must move forward. No, yeah. It's just, <laughs> yeah. just as a great one. Yeah, but they, every time there's amazing stuff on the Facebook page, and I'll bring one of those next time. But I wanted to bring like a Kurt blurt that Kurt did not write, and that's what I'm bringing for the social media feed this week. Yeah. I'm not going to give the name because <laughs> I'm going to pretend it's out of respect because they reached out very vulnerably about some depression in their lives and stuff. Right, right. But it's actually because I don't have Wi-Fi in the building and I can't look it up and I didn't write it down. <laughs> But you lucked out, buddy. No, no, but person. someone wrote a very nice message privately, and I asked if I could share it on the air because, in the message, it's someone who worked for the drone strike program at some point. And oh. he was saying that, you know, he was one of the many people who had watched the footage of the people and then tracked the target, and then the strike happened. And then you look at the footage afterwards to make sure the strike was successful. Right. And he just said he couldn't help but remember one time they fired three. I'm going to say Sidewinder missiles because it's the only kind of missile I can think of. But he said, like, you know, he knew his shit. So he's like, we fired three XJ dash blah, 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 Cobra steelhead missiles at a dude. Right. And all I could think was, we just used three college tuitions to kill this one human being, like two and a human being's life. Oh, wow. It seems counterproductive to kill people, but even more so when you're like, that could have fed a family of four for 30 years, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that really got me. And... So specifically, I thought was like a turn of phrase that Kurt totally could have written. Yeah, that's a very I liked a lot. finally get thought. So come read the. It's like the uh, director's commentary or bonus tracks. Yeah, I think. come hang out with us in these social media groups. The Twitter account, an account at KIP Publishing. They just let us know that there's a Scientific American blog post arguing that we need to colonize Titan. We need to go and do that. Oh wow! Like saying like that is the planet we need Wait, to go. Wait, so put is colonists on? Is the weather on Titan? remarkably earth-like as kurt predicted in sirens no it's pretty awful okay uh, and thought... it's far <laughs> why not mars i don't understand why titan over mars they were arguing that mars lacks the atmosphere to keep us safe from galactic cosmic rays and those and titan has and an atmosphere yeah and we're yeah. finding that those rays destroy brain tissue and we're trying to figure out exactly why or if there's a way to shield against that but in the meantime they they were basically arguing that the moon and mars are impossible because it would yeah. just destroy the brains of the colonists uh, I heard, within a yeah, short time. Yeah, cell phone cell phone signal rays they're called I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone just go about your lives, you sheep. <laughs> Well, that's cool. Yeah. So I don't know. Are, I, you, I, are you sure it's not because they saw a photo of some beautiful ladies? <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'm the head of NASA. We have to get to Titan. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, so please keep reaching out to us on the internet. And in the meantime, mm -hmm. we uh, have this whole new book to get into, Cat's Cradle. And why not get into it's it? It's adorable. With children's book. <laughs> Just lovely illustrations. The cats are in little nappies. Right. <laughs> There's definitely cats and definitely cradles. Yeah. And uh, it's really... Uh, yeah. The last page was a little raw, I thought, for a children's book. It said, yes, damn cats. Yes, damn cradles. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we kid. We kid. But yeah. yeah, cat's cradle, please. Yeah. Let's Put me on task. <laughs> get into it with what happened in it with the segment I believe we call Plot Time. Ticking, ticking is the traditional sound of plot time. Tick, tick, boom! <laughs>
<laughs> Saliva? Think <laughs> the band. All right, <laughs> cut that out. <laughs> so what happens in Cat's Cradle? What happens in the book? Jesus, quite a bit. I also am very impressed that it has two amazing blurts before the table of contents, before we even get into the story. It's amazing. It's his most crystalline... Oh, I, I see what I did there by accident. Hey. I would say it's his most crystallized, definitely at least up to this point in his canon, because I haven't read everything that we'll get to. Yeah, but same. he's boiled down. It's like mainlining Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> crack. The, th- yeah. <laughs> the things that you want him to do, I mean, I like seeing him try and experiment and do all sorts of things, but the classic Kurt Vonnegut nugget of wisdom that we call a Kurt Blurt, yeah. this is like the hit parade of just it's Kurt a, Blurt's, yeah. almost every chapter is a vignette that's a page or two with one point. It's like reading a far side calendar of enlightening things, <laughs> basically, <laughs> that I guess that have an arc, but you know what I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's so, so vonnegut yeah, we were talking about Mother Night being very, very short-chaptered and punchy, and this like maxes that out. To the extreme, This yeah. book has 127 chapters, and my edition of it has 287 pages. <laughs> so on, yeah. on average, a chapter is like a little over two pages yeah. tops. And it's there's nice. a lot of white space because of all the chapter breaks and everything. And it's really tight. In your edition, was there a table of contents that listed every chapter and the title of the chapter? Oh, yeah, I think so. That's what's crazy to me. Yeah. So he... And I think it's a really brilliant literary maneuver. Well, first of all, we know, and we'll get to other reasons why here too, I think. As we said, he famously said to hell with suspense, I think you told me, to a group of writers he was working with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's obsessed with telling you everything up front. So in the same way that he'll later in the book use an index to like give someone's life story, the index of a book, even though there's 127 chapters and any other author would title them one, two, three, he has a fucking like six page table of contents where if you read all the chapter titles, it's like reading the DVD chapter headings of The Negotiator. You basically know what happened. <laughs> like there's a chapter title that's like, well, because of a Simpsons joke, has everything. But yes, but like uh, it gives you the shape of it. And I just thought it's so interesting to waste your time, quote unquote, but in a way that undermines suspense. And I also think all the titles have chapters and even have long titles to make you think like, don't think this is just going from chapter four to chapter five of Harry Potter and you just keep going with the narrative. You're supposed to stop, think about why I titled that chapter that title, like a painting, like there's resonance between the (laughs) title and the thing above the title or below the title in this case. And like, think about it now, next chapter. Yeah. Or at least that's how I read it, very haltingly. Maybe I'm just a slow reader. No, that, that's a good way <laughs> to go. Well, it, And it really is, like either it'll be some kind of title that gives some sort of, oh, there's an extra layer to what you just read in this very short chapter. Or it's just like, uh, chapter 76, Julian Castle agrees with Newt that everything is meaningless. And then in chapter 76, <laughs> that happens. That's yeah. just the, the plot of chapter 76. And please forgive me as we go... Because I wrote them all down in my notes. As we go through the synopsis, I may just pause sometimes to go like, by the way, this chapter's called This Bullshit, because some of them are hilarious. What are the blurts that you, what do you qualify as a blurt that comes before word one of the book? So I think also, because of the way this book works, we're in plot time, but we're also going to get into another segment within it called Kurt Blurt. Segments within segments, my God, the universe. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, <laughs> so even before the table, you just, in mine at least, you open the book, 
You get uh, there's dedication to Kenneth Lidauer, who was his first literary agent, mm-hmm. and then the next page, one line says, "Nothing in this book is true." Great, <laughs> thanks. And then the next line is a quote from the Books of Bokanon, chapter one, verse five: "Live by the foma that make you brave and kind and healthy and happy." And then there's an asterisk explaining that foma are harmless untruths. Is the footnote on the page? Yeah, it's on the page. Yeah. And I guess he couldn't have controlled that. My footnote that said FOMA are harmless untruths that make you happy and healthy was at the end of the book, <laughs> which I thought if well, Kurt did it was amazing because it makes you meditate again on the thing at the end. But cool either way. Yeah. And again, he, he's big on like, here's the moral of the story. You can read the story if you want. If you just believe me, you could just stop at his introductions usually. Yeah, really. And you mentioned, yeah, when he said to hell with suspense, this is another Facebook friend of ours pointed out. There's eight rules for writing that Kurt told to a group in New York, and it's collected in Bagambo Snuffbox. But the eighth rule is give your readers as much information as possible as soon as possible to hell with suspense. Readers should have such complete understanding of what is going on, where and why, that they could finish the story themselves should cockroaches eat the last few pages. Graphic. As a natural imagist. Yeah. I want to wait till we get to Bagambo's snuffbox because I'm a stickler and I always have problems with writing rules. Oh, Because I'm like, well, I don't know. There's so many stories that break that rule and it works well. Yeah, yeah. True of any writing rule, and then we'll get into it later. <laughs> yeah, it all, well, it, it almost feels like less of a rule for writing in general and more of a rule for like how Kurt writes. Writing in the he style does this of, all the, yeah, all the time. It's incredibly insightful <laughs> as to his writing, but I don't know that it's like universally applicable. Right, you can write like a mystery if he's you want. Te- yeah, he's telling you what wor- <laughs> has worked for him very well. Yeah. Totally. Oh, I, I just wanted to note, nothing in this book is true is so funny after the last book being... The introduction was, this book is true. <laughs> Nothing's been changed. Oh, yeah. What a reversal. So it's like you just yeah. flipped a coin. He was like, oh, I'll try the opposite now. <laughs> and yeah. So then after this great setup and this table of contents that kind of sort of tells you the mm-hmm. whole book, then we get straight into it and we meet the main character who asks us to call him Jonah, his but name his name is John. Is John. <laughs> and yeah, reminiscent of the Sirens of Titan Jonah thing. Doesn't really come up. I don't know why that was the... Because Jonah was fated to be places, and he's fated to be places. But it's kind of like a throwaway, let's get into the book. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's a very immediate meta, like, ah, you know, we're doing it. Yeah. And, yeah. Chapter one is called The Day the World Ended. Right. I know several sci-fi stories that start with, like, part one, the end. I like that. <laughs> I like that technique. And it's because he's writing a book called The Day the World Ended. Yeah. And in his, which he's going to try and recount the events of what famous people were doing on the day the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, right? Right. And especially try to put kind of a human face on these atomic scientists and these famous people when the day the world ended is like, he thinks, I think, sort of a reference to, oh, I mean, the world could end from these atomic bombs, but we're going to find out how the world ended in the book. Yes. Yeah. So it's a fake out. It's definite foreshadowing, but also literally the title of his book which he calls his can-can. Can, can you find your can-can? Sorry. (laughs) Um, Which is, what, the MacGuffin that gets you into Bokanonism? Yeah, the can-can is like the thing that helps to lead you to it, yeah. Okay, so we should say at the outset, a fake religion called Bokanonism, how do you pronounce it? I pronounce it Bokanonism, yeah. Non or known? Non? Non. Bokanonism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Wow, we've met on one. It'll become a Show's big. Over. No, <laughs> it'll become a big part of the novel in the future. 
How do you pronounce that? <laughs> it's what? Oh, get off my nuts. So we'll go through his buzzwords at some point. But yeah, so can-can in the parlance of this religion is whatever object sort of got you into the religion. Yeah, it's the it's specifically the instrument which brings one into his or her caress. And a caress is a team of people that does God's will without ever discovering what they're doing. And a very central concept in Bokanonism. Yeah, and the book in general. So he's writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter three, folly. That's where I'm at. Is well, that where he, you're at? I believe the next step is he wants to get in touch with the kids of Felix Honecker, who is the, the, the key scientist behind developing the atomic bomb within this book's world. Yes, fictitious Oppenheimer, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he writes to Felix's kids, because he has three kids out there. His daughter, Angela, his son, Franklin, and his other son, Newt. And uh, he reaches out to Newt first. Either he reaches out to Newt or Newt's the only one who writes back. Because I know Angela later says I meant to write back and I never got around to it or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. regardless, he gets in contact with Newt, who's the youngest of the three Honecker children. And he just flunked out of Cornell. And I guess that's why he's willing to talk to him. They're both the same frat at Cornell. Yeah. Even though he's in the process of being expelled from Cornell. They're both Cornell people, which is <laughs> yeah. also an interesting Cornies. Kurt connection because Kurt went to Cornell and he was able to connect with Knox Berger, his longtime friend and editor, because they were both <laughs> Cornell people and like met up later and published. Do you see what I mean when I was saying he had a life rife with stupidly named people? Yeah. <laughs> Knox Berger is a close friend. How are you not going to name your characters stupid shit? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's what, he doesn't know any better, you guys. Right. <laughs> um, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. is the most normal name he ever encountered. <laughs> so yeah, so Newt writes back over several chapters. You get multiple letters because he'll end, unlike today, he sits all night writing a long letter out and writes, I'll write you more in the morning when I awake and shit like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what's <laughs> in the letter? Newt tells a story of dropping out of school and what he can remember of the time when Felix was developing the bomb. Newt was the, is the youngest kid yes. and was very, very little when it was happening. But the one thing he remembers is on the day, Felix was playing with a piece of string. And he was just in his office playing oh, with yeah. peace string. And he says that Felix basically spent his entire life just playing with whatever he was presented with. And like his whole Nobel speech is essentially saying, I've spent my life dawdling like a kid on the way to school. And I guess that's why I got this. Thank you very much. And that's it. He's a sociopath. <laughs> I mean, uh, a big theme of the book is, as Vonnegut loves to talk about, I think, you know, our science and technology develops, but our morality or sense of what's right and wrong or our sense of self-restraint doesn't develop at the same rate. Right. So we end up with the atomic bomb, but not the sense to not have wars when everyone obviously would rather not be killed or have to fight <laughs> if they could get along somehow. And like this guy's the embodiment of, when I say he's a sociopath, I mean, he only cares about awe and the fascination of science, which is charming yeah. and admirable, but... It's a great dark depiction of something you usually see as great. Because if you're watching a movie and there's the character who stops to smell the roses or sees the beauty in the swirl of a coffee creamer thing, yeah. you're like, oh, good guy, right? Yeah, you want to have your heart open to that. Yeah. But this guy is like, you find out along the way, like, his wife died, so he pulled his eldest <laughs> daughter out of high school in freshman year and made her drop out of school to just, like, make his sandwiches every day. Yeah, because yeah. he's too busy sciencing. Like, he, he can't function. He's your classic mad scientist who can't talk to people and only is looking around at science and stuff. But he's also supposed to be raising three small children. Right. So it's yeah. fucked up. And, of course, 
without caring at all, he's like, oh, here's some interesting equations. Oh, you want to make a bomb out of it? Whatever. I'll move on to my next project. He doesn't care one way or the other that they dropped it on Hiroshima and killed X number of people. He just sciences. That's all he cares about. Yeah, he's not thinking about that. And he, I definitely, he's a sociopath. And also I felt like I connected in my brain a little bit to Slaughterhouse-Five where the Trelfamadorians just kind of know that, yeah, eventually we'll do something that ends the world. And it's just kind of the way it is because there's just a force of curiosity and research and progress where eventually it will lead to something that blows us up. And I feel like this book, Cat's Cradle, Kurt kind of personifies that in one guy. Like he just has a guy who's that entire force all at once where it's just like, oh yeah, all of the progress and research and curiosity that we have, eventually it'll just cause this because that's the way it goes. Oh, well. Well, natural selection's an experiment and I feel like it could totally be true given that like dinosaurs ruled for 65 million years. There'll be a point when if there's a sentient creature, it could look back on Earth's history and be like, well, the humans was this experiment an organism on Earth tried where they put all their points into intelligence, innovation, and tool use. And it turns out that's real good for a short-term dominance, but it always results in, like, self-annihilation. Yeah. That could totally be just the way we're <laughs> headed. Ah, I've been reading too much Vonnegut. So, yeah, he, <laughs> Newt tells um, a story about on the day of the bomb, yeah. his dad basically was playing with a piece of string because he's a sociopath and wasn't <laughs> thinking about anything in particular. Yeah. But he suddenly got a rare whim to want to show someone something rather than just be in his own head. And the only person around yeah. was Newt playing on the floor. So he goes up to Newt and he shows him the eponymous REM album, Eponymous. No, he shows them <laughs> a cat's cradle that he made yeah. with the string. And he tries to, he's like, look at the cat's cradle like you do with the kid, yeah. shaking it in their face. And Newt is fucking horrified. Yeah, he talks about like, oh, I could see all the pores in his face really clearly. And like he had cigar breath and he was just like, see the cat, the cradle. Uh," And I was like, there's no cat in cradle and you're gross and I hate this. Yeah. And it's the traumatic experience of Newt's life. (laughs) Obviously, because he paints it obsessively later in life and he talks about cat's cradle as an analogy for everything. Yeah, yeah. As a a Uh, for, oh, we think of things there because we just decided it is and it's now. So he runs outside. Where he finds Frank. Tell us about Frank, Alex. <laughs> Frank is the other son of Felix Honecker. He is a model builder for most of his high school time. And uh, he is someone who everyone presumes is someone who jerked off and made model airplanes. Hey, don't no, ruin my Kurt blurt. Oh, no. <laughs> That's literally my favorite line in the book. It's great. <laughs> well, okay, so... Side Kurt blurt, blurting out the side. There's a line where John, who we didn't say is a journalist, and it doesn't fucking matter. He's just like the everyman protagonist. Well, and he, <laughs> he's also so Kurt. We'll get into that yeah, later. Yeah, he's but. just Kurt Vonnegut wandering around experiencing things for you. Yeah. But he's nominally a journalist, so he's asking people about, did you know Frank when he was growing up? People in the town later on, and they're like, yeah, uh, yeah we call him Secret Agent X9 as a joke, because he was always like, I don't want to talk to you. I have my head down. I'm going somewhere as if I have something important to do. And he's like, do you think maybe he was as brilliant as his father and he did have something important to do or something in his head that was incredible, that was privately his? And he goes, nah, he's just the kind of kid who builds model airplanes and jerks off all the time. (laughs) And I was like, 
Because I hate Frank by the end of the book. Yeah. But I did a fair amount of that in high school. (laughs) And I was like, someone could easily say that about me. I didn't know I was hurting anyone or that it was wrong. (laughs) Because I hate Frank. And then I was relieved because I think last night you shared the document, your notes on this. And one of the things I read was Kurt Vonnegut said in an interview or something... Oh, yeah, that line's about me. I'm the kind of kid who just built modern airplanes and jerked <laughs> off in high school. And I was like, oh, thank God. Okay. That's yeah. okay then. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he told the Paris Review, and then it's collected in Palm Sunday. But Kurt Vonnegut says, like, yeah, I was I spent high school jerking off and building model airplanes. That was me. It's yeah. funny that he was willing to cannibalize that for the character who represents, like, okay, do you remember the woman in Breaking Bad? who becomes a head honcho and is responsible for all these deaths, but is unwilling to see blood or dead bodies. Who, like, works for Gus? Yeah, yeah. and it, like, disgusts you. It's a great gimmick, because you're like, if you're going to fucking be responsible for stealing people's lives, yeah. even though it doesn't make it right, you could kill them yourself or something. Uh, right. Or, like, it's weird that you want to be sanitized from it. It's yeah. offensive. You should, and, like, like, part of the fee for getting to run this totally. is that you should have to experience some of it. And Frank is that. I think that's sort of largely his function in the book. He'll say at the end of the book that like his father, he just wanted all the creature comforts of life with as little responsibility as possible. Right. Like whatever he was interested in, he wanted to pursue that and he wanted nothing to matter (laughs) outside of that. And he's a fucking dick, dude. Yeah, he's... he's He, when Newt finds him in the yard, he's doing the classic shaking bugs in a jar to make them fight. Mm -hmm. Obvious symbol for like... This is someone who not only is fascinated by suffering and strife, he will go out of his way to make things suffer and struggle for his entertainment in a jar. He feels clinically detached from it. He doesn't care about it. He's not empathizing with the spider. He just wants to see if a spider could kill a hundred ants or whatever it is that day. Right. Yeah. So he runs out to the yard. He meets his dick brother, Frank. His (laughs) bitch sister, Angela, comes out. Sorry, I hate all the children. Yeah, they all stink. I feel like... the book kind of You're right. I take that back. The B word's a nasty word, but I said dick right then, so I was like, it's the equivalent. Yeah. Ooh. All right. So anyway, (laughs) all these miserable, shitty children, because they were raised poorly by a bad parent, I'm not blaming them, Yeah. run out of the yard. They start fighting. Frank punches Angela in the gut. By the end, this is Newt's letter still, by the way. (laughs) All the children are rolling around the yard, weeping like the Civil War scene of Gone with the Wind, like groaning in pain from having fought each other. And they describe that, like, Felix Honecker, looking like startled and confused, sticks his head out the window. Yeah. And then quietly sticks it back in the window to continue researching turtles, which is such a great... Just yeah. like meshing of imagery. <laughs> Pokes his head out of the house and is like, oh no. And <laughs> just goes back to studying <laughs> turtles. Because yeah. he's an asshole. When there, there are a couple great little Felix anecdotes in the book. One is that he, in key situations, will be like, when turtles put their heads in their <laughs> shells, will they like buckle their spines or will it contract? Or right, like, in the middle of people being like, the train is coming, we got to get out of the way. <laughs> it's not that, but like that. Yeah, and there's also, there's a story where Felix is going to receive the Nobel Prize and his wife makes him breakfast that morning because she, she dies, but she's still alive during that story. Mm-hmm. And she's making breakfast and he's like, great. And he gets up from the table and she finds a tip like, he just assumed she was a waitress because he's that checked out yeah. of, like, anything going on in life. 
But it was a 20% tip. I would have. That was pretty yeah, good. She yeah, kept yeah, it. No. <laughs> uh, and also, those anecdotes all come from an actual guy. There's a guy named Irving Langmuir who, oh. if you remember the player piano episode, he comes up a lot, but he worked at General Electric and worked closely with Kurt's brother Bernard. And Bernard was a scientist at General Electric. Kurt got a job there as a PR guy. And no, he's a robot. Are you not caught up? <laughs> Did I spoil that for you? It's oh Westworld. Yeah, let's yeah. not. <laughs> and uh, Langmuir won a Nobel Prize as an industrial scientist. He was the first person to do that, I believe. But he was... Not that cartoonishly checked out of the world in general, but he did that tipping his wife thing and that really getting into Turtles thing and their lab at G let them do whatever they wanted. And so a lot of that stuff with Langmuir is just directly written into Cat's Cradle. Yeah, so basically all the stories prove that he's a sociopath. He abandons his car in traffic one day because he doesn't want to bother with it anymore, Yeah, etc. <laughs> but that's the point. He's like, we've described, that is thoroughly proven through these stories. The letter wraps up with... Him saying, P.S., like, you called my family illustrious. I just want you to know we're all, like, pathetic pieces of crap, basically. <laughs> like, he says, like, I take issue with you calling us illustrious. For example, I am a midget, which is sad. Like, that's not bad in and of itself. But uh, we'll get to <laughs> the handling of little people is unfortunate in the book. I think we agree. Including Newt has some kind of internalized self-loathing because he's like, how dare you call me illustrious? I am a short person. <laughs> and he's like, but even I have found love. Someone could even love a midget if you could believe it. <laughs> I'm like, Newt, oh, ease no. up on yourself a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but he's a product of that time, and I'm sure and they deal with discrimination now, but even more so in the 40s and 50s, I'm sure. Well, and also, because the uh, the very end of Newt's letter, it ends with a good blurt of, he's like saying, by the way, I know this letter seems pretty miserable, but actually, like, I'm I'm happy enough. Like, you know, I have things going on in my life. And the last quote is, there is love enough in this world for everybody if people will just look. Uh, and yeah. it's a lovely sentiment, but also one of the few surprises in the book is that the person Newt fell in love with was a secret agent manipulating. Mother Night style. She's a USSR <laughs> agent who claimed to be 24 and is actually 48. Yeah. And was using him to steal from him. So I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to save it for Kurt Blurt, but we'll get it out of the way now and we're we'll kinda, drop it. I think we're kind of doing both at the same time. We're just All like, right. Well, I still segments. expect a concentrated like Blurt off. Yeah, yeah. We'll Paul Blurt, Mall Cop, where we Blurt <laughs> back and forth. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I just tagged this as Kurt Blurt. Because I see so many people post it as a legit Vonnegut quote. Because yeah. he is someone who believes in the power of love yeah. Yeah, 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 as good. He doesn't believe it's unstoppable and it always wins. But he likes it. Right, right. But he does not mean this, people. <laughs> <laughs> this is black sardonic irony. Yeah. That this guy says, but there's one positive thing in my life. I'm beloved by this woman. You're not. It turns out she's lying to you to steal from you, therefore implying I think it's a total FOMA. Like, yeah. the idea that, and I don't know, did you see Precious? Like, there's people who live lives of extreme deprivation where they're never going to be in a situation where their life is stable enough that they'll date people and find love, like the real yeah. vulnerable two-way street that we think of as like a loving relationship. Some people don't in their lives. It is a lie to say there's love enough in the world if you just look around. <laughs> but I think it's a FOMA that is not necessarily bad. It's good to believe that if it helps you. But I just see so many people, I'm totally post-it sincerely. Yeah. And I think it's a moment of extreme irony. Yeah. Poor Newt. Because you're right, it seems like something Kurt would believe in his life, but it's definitely a FOMA Newt is living by at the time. Also, what parents 
find out they're going to give birth to a little person and they're like, let's call him Newt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? Uh, and yeah, his ex-fiance's wife's name is Zinka. Doesn't yeah. matter. Funny Russian name. Dancer. Just Turd fun. Ferguson's a good name. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Jonah's finding all this out through letters from Newt and then finding out more by going to Ilium, New York, uh, which you'd recognize from some past Vonnegut, and interviewing people who knew Franklin in his life. And then he goes to the works in Ilium and meets a scientist named Asa Breed who kind of shows him around and shows things. And so you're building this story of the Honickers yes. and the bomb and it's over, heavily implied over this that journey. Dr. Breed was boning Felix Honecker's wife and is the real father of the three children. Yeah. I think hence his name being Dr. Breed, but <laughs> that's just, I look for stuff in Vonnegut names and I sometimes it pans out. But yeah, he basically interviews Dr. Breed who gives him some of the stories we already told you. And it ends with like a, this interview is over because of these gotcha questions, essentially. Dr. Yeah. Breed dislikes uh, his line of questioning because it turns out he says, unbeknownst to him, just sort of his biases surfacing. He was like, I even surprised myself because as the interview unfolded, I started to be very negative and very much like, don't you feel complicit in the murder of all the Japanese men and women and children? And, you know, to the point where Dr. Breed, of course, who thought this was a fluff piece interview, is like, get off my back, man. I'm science. I'm the king of this science castle. <laughs> so he ends up kicking him out before he does. The last right. thing he does is explain Ice Nine, right? Yeah, because yeah. he also, he gets furious about that and also furious about, he's asked about the general story of Ice Nine, which is also, in real life, Irving Langmuir thought of Ice Nine as a general concept and pitched it to H.G. Wells, because H.G. Ah. Wells visited GE's lab, and he was like, hey, H.G., you could probably build a story around this general sci-fi yes. concept, right? And H.G. was like, eh, no thanks. And but then Kurt ran with check, it. Yeah. It's conclusively true that a form of ice that's stable solid at room temperature is not possible, right? Yeah. It's, or in conventional means that we would think of. Because there's also a story where Kurt was at a party and he um, had worked on the general idea of this book for a long time. This was actually his very first novel idea because he ran with that idea from Langmuir and tried to turn it into a thing. And there's an address in Womp Eaters Foma and Grand Falloons. There's a speech he gave to the American Physical Society. Womp Eaters. We're going to have a problem. Oh, here. no, really? <laughs> Wompeter. No, Womp Eaters. You're positive? I just think so. Oh, you're just saying it with <laughs> conviction. Okay, I just think continue. Kurt is, he tells this story in a speech where he says he was at a cocktail party with a crystallographer and he like mentions the concept of ice that's stable at room temperature to the guy and quote, he put his cocktail glass on the mantelpiece. He sat down in an easy chair in the corner. He did not speak to anyone or change expression for half an hour. Then he got up, came back over to the mantelpiece, and picked up his cocktail Sorry, glass. Sorry, I had to fart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a dad joke. Sorry, please finish your amazing no, anecdote. Great. That's probably what I mean. So he, he got up, came back over to the mantelpiece, picked up his cocktail glass, and he said to me, Nope. So Ice Nine was impossible, and Kurt says that, be that as it may, other scientific developments have been almost that horrible. The idea of Ice Nine had a certain moral validity at any rate, even though scientifically it had to be pure bunk. Oh, so we're yeah. pretty sure, like, no one's built it, and it seems impossible based on how water works. Right. Who's going to say what science can't do in a million years? But sure, it's right. right. In the tradition, right now, it seems impossible. Yeah, but it's a thing where Honecker realizes that you can rearrange the way ice crystals stack on a very molecular level i believe mm -hmm. and so you can build an ice that 
is stable at room temperature because he was asked, how can U.S. Marines get out of mud? Right. The military would really like U.S. Marines to not have to deal with mud. How can we make mud just solid as dirt? And he was like, well, you could kind of just change water so it freezes differently. So then that would turn all the mud solid. And then the interview between Jonah and Breed, it becomes a thing of like, yeah, but what would the mud do to the lakes and rivers? Wouldn't the seed of this kind of spread? And he was like, well, yeah, it would spread to the lakes Right, because the idea is I think it's important to note just if you, I don't know how far people got in chemistry or like, uh, but yeah, in yeah. a crystalline structure, the shape of the crystal that forms, obviously, if you think of like puzzle pieces matching up, it will inform the shape of the next molecule that's going to lock in and, and form the solid as it's freezing. Right. So the idea is you can create a shape of ice crystal where the edge is so attractive to water molecules, even at room temperature, that everything just gloms onto it, locks into place, crystallizes, freezes, freezes, freezes. So King Midas, like anything it touches made of water will freeze and anything touching that will freeze. Yeah. And so Felix is playing with this puzzle and comes to the realization of, oh, if I have a tiny chip of ice nine rather than ice one or two or three, one being the one we're used to, if you could just drop that chip and then that would turn the mud solid for the Marines. And then in the interview, they're like, yeah, but wouldn't that turn all the water around that solid and the water around that solid and eventually turn all the water on Earth solid and breeds like, I mean, I guess, but they never built Who it. Cares? So it doesn't matter. And he's like, well, would that kill here. everyone on Earth if you just accidentally dropped it in a puddle? And Get he's out like, of my office. I you're don't trying, care for this. Yeah, you're yeah, trying yeah. to make it seem like everything we do ends in the end of the world. Fuck off. Yeah. Right. And then immediately after that interview ends, Kurt Vonnegut tells us, also, turns out Ice Nine was real, and people have it. And, <laughs> and of course, <laughs> as we all know, it is responsible for the end of the world, which is coming soon. Right to a book near you, because here's the whole plot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that chapter title, by the way, chapter twenty three, the last batch of brownies. Great chapter <laughs> title for referring to the final chip of Ice Nine that exists on Earth. Right. Chapter twenty four, what a wampeter is. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue so much better than what a womp eater is. So what a womp eater is. So a womp eater. That's is how you sound. The <laughs> I know they can hear me. <laughs> uh, a womp eater. That's another Bocanonis term. It's the pivot of a caress around which the souls of the member of the embers of the caress revolve. And so it's pretty clear that Ice Nine is a womp eater for most everyone in the book. It just sounds like in Star Wars, like they're eating womp rats or something. <laughs> now I just want to say it that way. A caress um. is a team. No, I do say caress. <laughs> but yeah, we said it before, but I think it bears repeating so that the structure is clear of this fake religion. If you, like me, after reading this book for the first time, want to become a Bokanonist, because it yeah. seems a very sound religion. <laughs> it was my first listed religion on Facebook. But a caress is a team of people but it explicitly is not a nation of people or like a sports team or even a family. That's a grand faloon. A grand faloon is any kind of organization that we humans think, oh, these people are all a group, like stand-up comedians. It's a brotherhood of comedians right. and sisterhood and personhood of comedians. And you're like, <laughs> maybe, but not to God. God doesn't care about that. There are right. secret teams called a caress, meaning these select people all over space and time will be involved in this important event and bring it to fruition through their actions. Right. Like, I guess, Chrono bringing the piece to Titan. The, yeah, the piece it's is very the, sirens, yeah. The piece, the little piece of metal is the Wampeter, and the Carass is the Constance and the Rumfords, and their yeah, and Sallow point and like is to bring the thing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so your Wampeter is whatever your goal is, and you don't get to know what it is, but whatever historical thing you're eventually going to cause. 
And so it's the ice nine end of the world yeah. is everyone's that. And I think it's interesting to note that sometimes our synopses feel disjointed because classic Vonnegut is he's going story, 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 story. And then the, for like three chapters, he's like, now I'm just going to stop and directly like yeah. define terms to you. Yeah, yeah. Like a dictionary would. Then we'll go back to the story. He doesn't give a shit about your plot structure. <laughs> and it's all and you're getting the information and plot movements from letters, people's yeah. stories, indexes, like just all kinds of different random sources, whatever, but not random, whatever made the most sense for making a clear quick thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of little vignettes at Dr. Breed's place, but I feel like we got to book it. From there, after talking to Dr. Breed, they go to see the gravestone of the Honecker family. And Jonah's driver, in the meantime, wants to take him to another gravestone on the way. Uh, to a gravestone store, actually. Oh, right. He wants to see Felix Honecker's grave, and you see a giant stone phallus. Right. And he's like, well, obviously, that's the one. And they walk up to it, and no, that's the grave of the Honecker children's dead mother. Right. And it turns out it was super expensive, and they spared no expense, and they each wrote a poem describing their grief into the shaft. Right. And they visited it all the time. And it's a Over giant- there is a tiny cube that says, Father. That's right. <laughs> that's Felix Honecker's grave. People, it turns out if you're a sociopath, your kids don't like you that much. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then the cab driver says, this makes me feel kind of guilty about one of my dead relatives or something. I wanted to buy like a wreath and come back and throw. Do you right. mind on this cab drive if we stop <laughs> at a headstone store nearby? Yeah. I would be like... Well, then call me an Uber. Like, yeah, come on, a, taxi driver. You don't have, you can't do that. As I was reading it, it was like, he's having a bad Uber ride before Uber was ever invented. Yeah. Like, just, you get that weird driver who's like, I need to pick up my parrot. Hang on. Like, you know, or whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. So there they are. Yeah. At a headstone store. And they, they find out that the people making the headstones, it's Marvin Breed, who is Ace's brother. And there's a big moment for Jonah, who I feel like Jonah is not a very... John is his real name, by the way. (laughs) I know. He just says, call me Jonah once for no reason. Yeah. Tying this all into Westworld. Hi, it's Brett. Oh, Uh, Jesus. Creator of Westworld, Jonathan Nolan, goes by Jonah. What? Oh, really? Okay. Worth the interruption. Yeah. Oh, you earned it. You earned it. John's and Jonas. Introducing our new (laughs) co-host. Brett Raider. Thank you. Yeah, you folks know Brett, right? If you don't, so, he's amazing. So, yeah, Jonathan Nolan, who goes by Noah, or uh, Jonah, and made a player piano reference, the center yeah. of his HBO show. So, obviously a big Vonnegut guy. We should reach out to him. Yeah, let's get for him For jobs. <laughs> <laughs> What's real good with that Westworld? You, can you get us comps? Yeah, so like season two, like... Yeah. like no, like, I mean the part I want to go to the... Oh, you want <laughs> I have want not tickets. learned the lesson from the show Westworld we were supposed to learn. I want to go. <laughs> Sorry, only got Samurai World tickets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Samurai World. Where are we? Oh, the funeral home. <laughs> yeah. So, John Jonah goes, and I feel like he's not a very specifically sketched out character for most of the book, partly because he's just Kurt, but... John Jonah Jameson, you can say he it. gets He has a big personal moment, because Marvin Breed's showing him around, and he's showing him, like, oh, yeah, there's this one great... It's this amazing stone angel in the store, and he's like, yeah, there was this immigrant to America from Germany, who his wife died here in Ilium, and he was like, let me buy her the nicest possible angel I can, and then he got robbed and all he had was some land in indiana so he kept going to indiana but anyway we've got this thing and it blows jonah away because the name on the angel 
is the unspecified German last name that Jonah also has. Right. So he realizes, we assume, I assumed, or at least, no, I guess knowing his own family history a bit, he's like, oh, these are my ancestors when they were traveling through. They stopped yeah. here. What does it mean? And he calls it a vindit. A vindit. Which in Bokanonism is a happenstance, I would almost compare it to deja vu, or a moment or feeling that pushes you towards the belief that the world is preordered and predestined. Like yeah. something happening where you go, oh shit, maybe nihilism isn't real, because how could this happen? Well, it's, right. it's a vindit for him. <laughs> yeah, it's like the world is very ordered and you'll never make sense of it, and this is the way it is. And because he's basically Vonnegut, it's a German name of people who went to Indianapolis. But yeah. it's he finds like, oh, Doesn't somehow this one angel yeah, yeah. is... My family. Familial exactly. continuity, yeah. yeah. And then the other little thing that I think's great at the funeral place is that you find out that Dr. Breed's son, the day the bomb was dropped, gave up on science. He was basically the yeah. player piano guy. Like, he was all groomed and destined <laughs> to take over as the head of science when Dr. Breed leaves. And he was like, fuck it, went to a bar, got drunk, and then came and wanted to be a stonecutter for his Uncle Marvin at the funeral home. Yeah. And now he is a famous sculptor in Rome. And I just think that's a great little moral that's folded in. Only like four sentences in the book comprise that moral if you strung them together. Yeah. But the story of that kid is like, look... Why do we take for granted that, well, scientific progress has to progress? It's like, no, it's, no. you can yeah. be disgusted, change your direction, and you'd be like, yeah, but you're going to be like a fucking graveyard tender or something stupid. And it's like, yeah, guess what? He's stuck at that, and now he's a sculptor of beautiful art right. living in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Like, be true to yourself and what you think is right, and often total bullshit in some people's lives but often it will lead you to a good place if it works out sometimes it doesn't work out anyway but you know yeah well and maybe if you're following your passion that'll help you know yeah. like that'll be a thing exactly and you yeah. don't have to take for granted that scientific progress is where it's at always yeah and uh and then speaking of people being passionate about building things jonah goes on to the model shop where franklin used to work it's called Jack's Hobby Shop, and Jack shows him around the place, and, and Jonah's like, oh, what kind of a kid was Franklin like? And and Jack's like, I'll show you what kind of a kid he was like. And he shows him this incredible like model city that he built in the back of the shop with all kinds of trains and buildings and things yeah. like that. And Jack's like, he was such a great guy. I can't believe it. Yeah, Jack loves Frank. He's living alone in the hobby shop because his wife recently left him. That'll come up later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and... He thinks that Frank's a beautiful soul because he was able to build an ornate model town, which I don't think says much of anything personally, but right. if you're a hobby shop owner <laughs> and, a and building models means a lot to you and a kid comes and builds lots of models, you're like, what a good egg. Right. right. It's <laughs> yeah. like the thing I love. So, uh, uh, but you find out through that passage <laughs> that Frank is wanted by the police because Jack's hobby shop was a front for the mafia, yeah. although they never explain why Jack was not wanted by the police. Yeah, because really he still sense. owns the hobby shop. <laughs> Yet they're scouring the globe for Frank to the point where he has to be on the run. Yeah. Then I'll say this: Vonnegut is not afraid to rip himself off. Right. All of Mother Night, a serendipitous newspaper clipping. <laughs> yeah. So Let's John see that Frank is still alive. Yeah, because also, so after that model shop thing, that kind of completes John's trip to Ilium, and so he goes back to New York City where he lives, and you find out that in the meantime, he had left his apartment to a poet friend of his, oh, and I the poet friend yeah. utterly destroyed the apartment. Like, he wrote poems and feces on the place and just wrecked it completely, 
And that also brings also up a killed fun... his cat and hung a sign around its neck that said meow. As right. if it's like, but as if like your nihilistic artistic bullshit statement is worth killing my cat. And he said that's also uh, what I think Vendette, but I could be misquoting. No, it's a no. A, the term is a rang rang. A rang rang. Okay. And a yeah. rang rang is a Bocanaz term for a person who steers people away from a line of speculation by reducing that line with the example of the rang rang's own life to an absurdity. So if John was thinking about nihilism at all, there's this brief inter- interlude where a nihilist poet completely ruins his apartment and kills his cat for no good reason. Right. Like if he had met a really cogent, thoughtful, nice, nihilist, humanitarian, secularist, yeah. he might have been like, maybe that angel didn't mean anything. But he's like, <laughs> oh, this is where this leads? That's stupid. Right. Yeah. So it must mean something. So it steers him yet again towards believing in predeterminism, which seems to be hammered home by the fact that he, a scant year later, as a journalist, his assignment is to go to this uh, fictional island nation called San Lorenzo right. to interview this uh, rich dude, Julian Castle, who built a mission and hospital out there. Yeah, it, it has the no religious and... context, just a hospital. Yeah. He's a multimillionaire who eventually gave it all up and did that thing where you go to the jungle and devote the rest of your life to helping a third world country. Yeah, He's going there to interview him. Oh, meanwhile, we should say he's like, put the book in a drawer, right? The book, The Day the World Ended. Yeah. So he's no longer actively pursuing the Honickers. Lo and behold, Frank Honecker is in a picture on like a military stage at a political event in San Lorenzo, standing behind the president of San Lorenzo. Yeah. In the newspaper. And then the picture, the newspaper also has a picture of Mona Amans Manzano, who is the president's <laughs> adopted daughter. AKA the single siren of Titan. Right. And it's just exactly that thing. Exactly of like, the sirens of Titan. This is the most beautiful woman in the entire world in a picture. I am going to travel miles and miles and go through all kinds of adventures just to find her. And I thought in retrospect, because I think we both ended up thinking, what does the Mona arc mean? Why is it there? Yeah. And I, there's little lessons, I guess, throughout. But the thing I was gathering is it might have been there as, because I got a great bigger picture this time reading it of how he tracked the God at work in the book. Like when I was a kid and read it, I didn't track how, oh, I see what you mean. That thing happening with that weird poet wasn't just a weird thing. It forces him down the road to his destiny. And he says at one point that, Maybe I would never have gone to the island if I thought it was just for like political or career reasons, but I thought that I was destined to meet and marry this woman I saw in the photo. So maybe she just exists to get him there. And again, in Vanua, we'll talk about how that's fucked up because then she's just like a bait. This woman's life was just a prize (laughs) to lure him to the island so he could do it. Right. But yeah, Mona's beautiful and that's about it. And I don't get that. Yeah, it's sort of a... She feels very like archetypy and lesson-y rather than like an actual person in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. And I don't know if that's good or bad or what, but functionally it gets us moving. It gets yeah. it gets him going on his uh quest as part of his caress. Yeah. But the uh the leader of the state, the island's dictator basically, is Miguel Papa Manzano. It's her father? Mona's father? He adopts her. He adopts her. She's the daughter of uh architect, I believe, from Finland named Nestor Amans. And then and an a unnamed local woman. native woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they both die and Papa Manzano adopts her. Right. And then she becomes central to the Bocanonist religion. Because she's so famously beautiful on the island that yeah. it seemed fitting that she always be related to the president. Isn't that <laughs> right. weird? That's yeah. weird. So he's the current dictator. And in this picture, he's there giving a speech or what have you. And Frank Honecker is there 
in like a ridiculous political military, quasi-military suit, yeah. and his credit is like the Minister of Scientific Progress. Right. <laughs> so obviously, John, who I will refuse to call Jonah because that's not his name. Although he we'll says, "Call me Jonah," so maybe yeah. you're in the right. And it's um, <laughs> like kind of a Moby Dick reference too, just because. Exactly. And, yeah. I'm going to call him Dick. So Dick's <laughs> in the plane. No, he's like, "What the fuck? How is this possible?" Yet another crazy coincidence. Obviously, yeah. I have to look into this. Right. Then and, I forget what happens. So well, please then take there's, over. <laughs> there's a long sequence on his flight to San Lorenzo, which is just somewhere in the Caribbean. That's I don't know exactly right. where. And he meets a couple of couples. <laughs> One of them is the Crosby's, H. Lowe Crosby, and his wife. And they are very, very, like, hardcore American. American, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the bad way that, like a European might view everything bad about America. They're yeah. fat and loud and they want the free booze. And furthermore, they're coming to exploit cheap labor on the island and yeah. they hate unions back home. They're like, we should come here and you should learn English and we're going to set up a bicycle factory and you're right. all going to work for under minimum wage. And that's the American goddamn dream. <laughs> right, yeah, just economic imperialism. Yeah, and we're going to go. It. And also, at San Lorenzo, in all the publications about it and press about it, they make a point of being like an ally of the free world and like we are the closest friend America has ever had. San Lorenzo deals big and their on beliefs. Pro, yeah, and pro U.S. Like propaganda. Yeah. Right, right. And then John also meets Horlick Minton and Claire Minton. Horlick Minton is the newly minted ambassador to San Lorenzo for the United States. So because I'm always trying to parse the names, I was like, Horlick (laughs) Mint on? Like you put mint on... I Never. still don't know what to make of their <laughs> name. Nothing, it's no. ridiculous. <laughs> and this is a couple that brings us to another Bocanonis term, which is the term Dupras. And a Dupras is a caress comprised of only two persons. Crazily, I think the Duplass brothers might be a Dupras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they actually, I always think of that when they do. Let yeah. me just say this on the air. They will die within one week of each other. <laughs> Is that legal? It's part Am of the I deal. Be arrested it's part for of saying... being a Dupress. <laughs> yeah. in the book. And a Dupress, they always die within a week of each other. Uh, the book also says that a Dupress is a valuable instrument for gaining and developing in the privacy of an interminable love affair insights that are queer but true. It is also a sweetly conceited establishment. So the Minton throughout the flight, John keeps trying to talk him up like, hey, what do you think of that, right? And they clearly have some sort of unspoken code with each other where everyone else is a little bit ridiculous and Everyone's they just know what them, ac- yeah. what's actually important in the world. Everything you do to them, they look at each other and roll their eyes, but they're nice to you. Yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah sweet condescension. Yeah. As was said. He also tries to, John tries to congratulate Horlick on like, you're the ambassador to San Lorenzo now. That must be pretty great. And they kind of roll their eyes like, yeah, right. sure. And it turns out that Claire wrote a public letter that got Horlick fired from his jobs because it seemed un-American. And then this is kind of the job he's fallen into is to be the ambassador to this ridiculous country. Right. And the Crosbys hate them because they heard about that whole scandal. And they yeah. go like, oh, I heard about him. He's that un-American guy. Yeah, yeah. Then you find out it's an op-ed his wife wrote. And all she said was... She was observing that Americans seem to have a special desire to be loved anywhere they go because anyone wants to be tolerated wherever they go, but people hate foreigners, and that's true of some percentage of the population all over the world. So when you go to a foreign country, some of the people will resent that you're there as a tourist. But for some reason, Americans can't accept that. We have to 
go to a resort where the experience is catered such that we don't interact with anyone who resents us. Because we want all the resources, we want all the access, we want all the luxury. We would still like to think we're nice people, so we don't want you to tell us that it sucks. Right, and we want to be appreciated for how nice we are all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so just like the Crosbys do. So basically that got them sent to this jerkwater berg, and you find out ensuingly that they're not wrong. San Lorenzo is essentially worth a worthless, perfectly rectangular chunk of gravel, <laughs> like yeah. a gravel bar in the ocean, surrounded by jagged spires of rock that make it bad like to a fish bad in. And, Everything yeah, yeah. sucks. You can't grow but, anything there. It's just shit. <laughs> it's also the main thing that they fish there is barracudas, which is really funny to me. It's just a stupid, angry like fish. Slurg like fish. Yeah. Just what a horrible thing to fish. Just a horrible, mean fish that seems <laughs> stringy and not. Yeah, because also in the process of meeting these couples on the book, John kind of is still on the flight and needs something to do. And so he starts reading a history of San Lorenzo written by Philip Castle. There's only a few copies. I think he gets one from the the Mintons. And they're just like, yeah, there are only a couple copies. Here you go. And from this, he learns about Bocanon's history. He learns about all these landform aspects of the island and learns what kind of a just crummy place it is in general. But there's a lot of Bocanon's history in there that's really interesting. It is. Yes. Very. I'm just scanning. Chapter 47 in this section, I must mention, is called Dynamic Tension, and it'll come up later. Again, another Vonnegut staple compared to Watchmen, compared to the invasion from the people of Mars. Yeah. Dynamic Tension is the Bocanonist idea that the tension between a perceived good and evil, whether it's real or not, having a threat to focus the populace, focuses their energies, makes them work together, and elevates a society. And it realizing that Kurt Vonnegut, I feel, sincerely believes this, it made me realize why the Malachi doll was important to him in yeah. Sirens. Vonnegut obviously thinks one thing that's true is that society benefits when they have an effigy to all hate. Right. Versus a real person or group of people. But you build a symbol that you can put all your negative energy towards, and then you go about your business and be courteous to your neighbors, and that would make for a better society. So to that end, that's in this book, Bokanon pushes that idea, and he calls it dynamic tension, which is the name is stolen from Charles Atlas, who basically (laughs) is the guy that invented pulling giant springs and just holding them to to build muscle. That was called dynamic tension. And I just have to shout out 10CC, one of my favorite bands of all time, have a song about this whole concept and Charles Atlas called Dynamic Tension. If we don't play a segment of it right now, Brad is fired. So we're coming out of that. That was oh, a great song. Man, I vibed out to that. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So he he learns other things from the book as well, though, not yeah. just dynamic tension. Because the he learns the basic biography of Bokonan and how he came to be on the island because he was... Oh, where was he born? Oh, gosh. Oh, geez. I wrote his whole life story. Okay, here's what I got. Bokonan is named Lionel Boyd Johnson. Right. Born to a family... It doesn't say where... Born to a family who was rich because his great-grandfather discovered Blackbeard's treasure. 
Total random side note, but the money passed down through the generations. He was sort of wealthy, grew up wealthy. He, he was born on Tobago, the island of Tobago. Tobago, right. Tobago. And uh, sorry, <laughs> that wasn't one of those. I'm not trying to shut you down. <laughs> but I would say keep in mind how similar this is to the lives of the Buddha or Muhammad. There are a lot of obvious... He's clearly crafting the life story of a prophet, someone destined yeah, to be a prophet. Because yeah. he's born rich, but is like a notorious sinner and hellraiser and gad about, right. but is also brilliant. Like got great grades without trying hard, yeah. was a good student in that way, but was also a hellraiser. He went to study in London to learn economics and political science. Yeah. Good things for a leader to know. Right. Fought with great honor in World War I, seeing mm-hmm. the horrors of war. We always like that in a messiah. <laughs> <laughs> Got bounced around the world and slowly became convinced of this Bokanonist idea that he does believe in fate. And so he decided, well, I'm going to wait until my fate unfolds. So yeah. he bounces around the universe, sort of waiting for the universe to tell him what the fuck he's supposed to do. He ends up like doing odd jobs, all kinds of random shit you don't need to know. At one point, he sails around the world with Remington Rumford IV. Yeah. <laughs> Another uh, shared universe name. Well, and, also, and he ends up working on the Rumford estate in Newport, Rhode Island right. at one point, which is, a, he talks about it very early in the book, but he also like probably worked for B and for Kazakh from yeah. Sirens of Titan. B and Kazakh, and we assume through them met a heretofore unknown Rumford, who's a sailor named Remington. Right. And they sailed the world right. together till the ship crashed. Remington died. We will never get his book. Nope. <laughs> Lionel Boyd Johnson then lived in India, where he happened to shipwreck, yeah. became a disciple of Gandhi, yeah. was part of the Gandhi protest movement, spent time in an Indian prison, then after he served his time, was sent back to Tobago, yeah. built another boat, because <laughs> I guess that wasn't his fate to be a seminal part of the Gandhi movement. I guess that wasn't good enough yet. Right, didn't work out. Set sail around the world again to see, he was now convinced it would be a shipwreck. He was like, I want to see what storm drives me where. He does shipwreck with his buddy, Earl McCabe. Yeah, who was a mar- deserter from the U.S. Marines and just kind yeah. of his friend. It's just who he happened to be buddied up with at the time. Yeah. They crash land on San Lorenzo. They crawl ashore with nothing, literally naked. And he is immediately like, oh my God, look at the symbolism. Crawling ashore naked on a desert island. Like, this I'm has reborn. to be it. Whatever's going to happen, it's, it's here. Yeah. So he settles in San Lorenzo. Yeah. And so then McCabe and Lionel Boyd Johnson, who is called Bokanon because that's just how Johnson sounds in the dialect of English spoken on San Lorenzo. They both set about, we're going to make this a utopia. How can we do it? And they quickly realize there's no resources to do that. What can we give these people? And so they create dynamic tension. They say, okay, Lionel, you become Bokanon and become a religious leader and become like the hunted good guy messiah. McCabe will become a horrible dictator who is out to catch Who's you at all about times. about law and order. Right. And that religion is bunk and Bokanon is our tra- ultimate traitor. Yeah. Right, right. And so we'll build this epic tale of you of... McCabe always trying to catch Bokanon and never quite doing it, and Bokanon spreading truths to the people, and McCabe saying it's lies, and they even come up with a thing where there's a giant iron hook that they'll hang people from for believing in Bokanonism, but they'll never really use it, because come on. And almost any crime is executable by hook, right? where they hang you alive from a giant fish hook and wait for you to die, however long or whatever it takes you to die from. Yeah. And what's hilarious as a side note is, 
the Crosbys like the idea of the hook, of course, because they epitomize American, like, yeah, corporal punishment, hell yeah, cheeseburgers, hell yeah, fast yeah. cars, yeah. <laughs> so they're like, they love the hook, and they think it brings law and order, and it makes the natives respect law and order. Right. And uh, he's like, well, have you ever seen anyone hooked? And he's like, uh, no, but we saw a wax museum where they showed you what it was like to be hooked, <laughs> and there was a little plaque that said, the reason this is here is because this is what they do in San Lorenzo. You later find out... Bokanon invented the hook because he went to that wax museum, saw that hook, and was like, that looks scary. Let's say that's how we execute people in San Lorenzo. <laughs> and they retroactively then heard about it at the wax museum and made it a cultural display about San Lorenzo. Right. But no one ever had, like, the hook is <laughs> nothing. <laughs> the hook came from nowhere and is nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I love. Yeah. And they also make a point of that McCabe and Bokanon both knew the roles they were playing going in. But it's and a most thing. people on the island knew. Yeah, I think that's important. It's a situation where it's like, from my perspective, <laughs> it's like Christianity for most Americans, where uh, you yeah. say you live by it. If you lived by it, your life would be significantly different. If you really read the Bible and did exactly what it said, right? You know it would. Your neighbors know it would. You enjoy telling each other that you're Christian, and I'm sure you do strive to epitomize the ideals that you appreciate about Christianity, like charity and love and goodness. That said, you're living in a state of self-bubbly delusion where you're like, we all agree that we all say the Bible's literally true, then we all do what we do, and no one busts each other's nuts about the fact that we're not living strictly according to the Bible. And when people do, we call them dangerous extremists. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a situation where everyone's even more on the surface like, Bokanon pretends to be bad. McCabe pretends to hate him. It's a fun pastime. It's almost like a group festival for the community. Yeah. Nobody break character or mention that it's fake. Everyone play along, and they do. Because this improves our lives to have this story and this event going on all the time. I think a beautiful way they put it is, they might have done something else to try and make the utopia, but first of all, it becomes clear that there are no laws they can make that will improve any lives for anyone on the island. So McCabe's part is sort of useless. And the truth of their lives is that they live on a shitty, unairable island that will never get better. Right. And at this time, at least in history, there's no reasonable hope that they'll ever make it to America or have a different life. Right. The truth is they are fucked. Right. So what can you give them if you can't give them a real way to lift themselves out of poverty? FOMA. Lies that make life at least bearable and entertaining and enjoyable. (laughs) <laughs> right so that's all they try to do <laughs> yeah yeah and mccabe and bokanon stick to it and the weight of doing that drives them both insane because bokanon is not just a saint he's also a human so that makes him crazy mother night and much. then and then McCabe, they pretend they become what they pretend to be in other words yeah exactly yeah. and because mccabe is also not just a monster he's also like a regular guy but he just becomes this crazy dictator and then people eventually do start getting hung from the hook from time to time and then other people take over the island. And when we get there, Papa Manzano is now the dictator that McCabe used to be. But he really seems to believe all this stuff. It's So it's a mix. Yeah, like, it seems like being a dictator did drive McCabe to be like, no, these people really do need to be ruled with an iron fist. And he starts occasionally executing people. However, they make a point of saying, it would be easy to capture and kill Bokanon. It's a very small island. Yeah. So he's not so crazy that he kills Bokanon. So again... A lot of characters in this book inhabit a world of intentional self-delusion where they live with teeth from their gears sawn off. 
Yeah, yeah. Like McCabe towards the end of his life thought, no, the play is real. I really hate him. If I caught him, I would really kill him. But if someone was like, okay, well, we can send the soldiers out and get him today, he'd be like, no, because I want the system to stay maintained, this <laughs> right. never-ending battle. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. That's weird. <laughs> um, so Papa is a- likewise able to inhabit the space where we find out, like everyone else on the island, he is a Bokanonist, devoutly, yeah. loves the religion, thinks everything it says is not true, because one of the core beliefs is that it's not true, <laughs> but thinks that they're helpful lies that are lovely and that are helpful, and he likes Bokanonism. Yeah. Nevertheless, he brutally hates Bokanon and would kill him in a second if he got the chance. Right. He claims, so he lives with both. He's just doing both things at once. Exactly. That's what it is. And he does it, and he's going to not question it beyond that. Right, right. <laughs> and that's the state of everyone on the island. You meet Julian Castle, the guy he nominally came there to interview. Yeah. He sympathizes with Bokanon. You meet his son, Philip Castle, who built the only hotel on the island and is also there. He is secretly a Bokanonist, even though it's strictly outlawed and punishable by death. Everyone right, right. is. You even run across a couple guys doing work on a room in the hotel, like construction guys, and you run into them touching their feet together, which it, you find out is a Bokanonist ritual called Bokumaru. And it's like just sharing love between two people by touching their feet. But the two guys are telling John, like, don't tell anyone we did that. We're going to get killed for it. Like, you have to not tell anyone that we were doing this foot ritual together. I was wondering, what do you think of the Bokumaru thing? He spends a whole yeah. chapter on the orgiastic pleasure of touching the soles of his feet to Mona's feet later. And I really wonder if it's just based around a dumb pun. Because he says the reason they do it is because it's a ritualistic mingling of their souls. Right. <laughs> really your religion's dumb yeah <laughs> your religion's based on a dad joke <laughs> well I, it's definitely that and i think i also took a general idea that foma can be something that you believe in so hard that it really starts to work and in particular if it has some kind of physical gut level interactive aspect to it because like as i read it i was like oh it's a silly thing to do how could it be that big of a thing but also i have never done that i don't think like i've like because no one does you don't like you never like laid on your back and played bicycle where you put your feet together and like paddle each other's feet when you're yeah i guess i have done that actually do you have siblings i have yeah one younger brother i mean i did that with my younger brother yeah Yeah. kids i guess i have done that thing and i didn't didn't think of it but i I didn't think of it as this i didn't think of it as like just touching feet together oh right yeah david i love you but i didn't feel like (laughs) our souls mingled at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were just riding a bike, man. <laughs> but I agree, there's all sorts of evidence, I firmly believe, any sort of ritualistic meditative practice that you believe will help you will help you. Yeah. Because that's just the power of taking time to slow down and focus on your breathing and calm down. That's helpful. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what you're... And if you're doing something that tactily on your skin feels good and relaxing, that probably is fine, or if not hurtful anyway. Yeah, and because like, in the book, uh, there's a part where Julian, who is the older castle and runs the hospital, he's saying about Bokumaro that it's like aspirin and that it works. Quote, I'm grateful for things that work. Not many things do work, you know? And like, yeah, as silly again. as it would be, it's like, yeah. he's like, he's very nuts and bolts about this is one of the few things in the world that works. Whatever lies we need to believe in to get there, great. Like, it's just helping Or people. maybe it's true. Well, they don't believe in a true truth. So not true in the capital T sense. But maybe we'll find out later that science supports Bokumaru and why it helps oh, the heart. But sure. you don't need to know why. If it yeah. works, just go ahead. 
is their argument. Yeah, it's just a thing. And he asks Philip Castle, who runs the hotel, you know, your father was this multimillionaire and then devoted his life to the saintly pursuit of saving people in the jungle. Don't you feel kind of obligated to do something more morally ambitious than run a hotel? And he's like, dude, (laughs) I grew up in the hospital. There was this one time there was a plague outbreak here. And it was like the concentration camps. And I saw dead people, dead people, dead people for weeks and weeks to the point where my father had a mental breakdown and did the Lion King speech to me (laughs) over an open grave of dead bodies. He says, he describes his father going to like 10 beds in a row and 10 patients he had been hopeful about are all dead. And he starts giggling and has to excuse himself because it's hella rude (laughs) and takes his son with him outside where there's more piles of dead bodies, and laughing says, look, son, someday this will all be yours. And he's like, so I didn't want to work at the hospital. Right. All right? It seemed like a bad idea. (laughs) And that's a lot of the progression of the book once we're in. San Lorenzo is talking to the castles about their lives and what they believe. Oh, one other group of people on the plane is Angela Honecker and Newt Honecker, who are going to the island because Franklin Honecker is going to marry Mona. And so they're going to have that wedding as an event. And then there's also going to be an event on San Lorenzo for the 100 Martyrs to Democracy, which is the biggest event in the history of San Lorenzo, which is where World War II broke out. And San Lorenzo was like, we will send 100 brave soldiers in a troop ship to help the American cause. The troop ship is immediately sunk by German U-boats. And so those are the 100 martyrs. 100 out of 100 are killed. Because they and just now they died senselessly yeah. in, a, in a boat. Back to Philip, not back to, but just the reason I brought that up is all throughout, I think you see all these examples of, you can start to pick out the concons and vindits and wampeters of other people in yeah. the book. Yeah. For example, I think the castles are a great example Philip Castle runs a hotel because of this particular memory about this plague outbreak. That is a Bocanonist idea that events are destined to shove you to where you were supposed to be instead. And later we meet Julian Castle, and one of the most intriguing things about him is that he gets no sense, at least he doesn't let on, maybe he does deep inside, he gets no sense of fulfillment or feeling that he's doing good or feeling of peace or contentment. He hates all the sick people, he hates doing this, but he keeps doing it, and he never explains why he keeps doing it. Uh, There's a great scene where he goes, you have more reason to be cheerful than most people doing what you do on this earth. And he says, you know, I owned a yacht once. (laughs) He goes, so what? And he says, well, that's a good reason to be more cheerful than most people on earth too, but I wasn't. And I'm not cheerful now. I'm not a cheerful man, (laughs) is the implication. And also, when I read that, because of I'm reading it at this time in in life, it immediately made me think of that Reddit meme with the cat, like, I should buy a boat. Like, it was... I don't know why. He even has one of the doctors working under Castle is a guy named Schlichter von Königswald, which is an amazing name. (laughs) Which I Uh, couldn't also glean anything from. It's just a great name. Just a great Dr. Schlichter? Yeah. And uh, it's like, oh, even Castle's co-workers, it's like, yeah, the doctor who works under me used to be in the SS in World War II. And they make a thing of like, now he came here to save lives. And if he saves lives at this rate, he'll save as many lives as he killed killed by the year 3010. Like, yeah. if he just keeps going. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, you know, one of my doctors is a Nazi. And he's like, well, you know, if you got to be a Nazi, at least he's trying to make it up. And he's like, yeah, right. Make yeah, it he'll up. Really, we he'll did really the math, motherfucker. Yeah. It's, really gonna uh, it's not likely. <laughs> and uh, then, oh, and sorry, can I say just before we move on yeah. from Julian? 
because it's, to me, one of the more moving scenes. I could picture it as a movie scene so clearly. The house they're all staying in, I think we should skip the history of the house. He gives you the history of the house. I don't care. They're staying in like a Frank Lloyd Wright waterfall house. That's awesome. You get the impression it's beautiful, and it opens on a waterfall where you can sit on the deck. And they all stay there together because Newt phones up John and tells him he wants to talk to him about something important. So he comes over there. Frank isn't there yet. He gets there. Nude is asleep on the deck in a lounge chair. Nude is a painter. Yeah. He's got his painting out on an easel. And it's like a treatise on nihilism. It's this black, scabrous, small frame where he like slathered it in black and blue paint and cut yeah. scratches into it. It's just ugly, yeah. And I love, first of all, just the shot you can imagine of that in front of a beautiful crystal blue waterfall with tropical jungle behind, but you're focused on a black square of painting and meditating on that. And uh, a lot of stuff happens. They wake up, they discuss it. Why did you do that? What's it about? He says it's a drawing of a cat's cradle. That's what the scratches represent. They get to a symbol I'm sure we're going to unpack more at the end, which is I never got why they call it a cat's cradle. It doesn't look like a cradle and there's no cat in it. I don't want to unpack that yet, but my important point is Julian Castle, the fucking curmudgeon, (laughs) the guy who is a saint, they call him Saint Julian, who comes and saves all these thousands of lives at great personal peril, comes in and goes like, what's this fucking piece of shit painting? (laughs) And Newt's like, well, it's like nihilism. And Julian goes, you're right. I couldn't agree more. Everything's meaningless garbage. And he walks up to the painting and he looks like he really admires it. Right. And then he goes, yeah garbage just like everything else and he throws it over the <laughs> balcony into the waterfall yeah and you're like i get someone coming to the party and bumming me out with their nihilist ideas you're not allowed to be like nothing means anything so i crashed your car don't fuck with my shit <laughs> julian is a dick yeah well and then and even right after that they talk about like there's a very impoverished community at the bottom of the waterfall we just gave them a piece of canvas we gave them four sticks you know, they and can that do makes you think about it crazily because then maybe Julian was nice. <laughs> right. Maybe Julian was thinking the people at the bottom of the waterfall need the wood more than you do. Right. It's you don't like... <laughs> know what's right or wrong ever. It's crazy. Yeah. You're just like doing your best little book. But in the moment, it feels so wrong when he throws it. Yeah. And, this, and Newt just like silently looks at just everyone like, like what's going to happen now? And Angela, as if he is a child, I, because he's a little person, I believe the implication is like, she treats him like a kid still. She's like, go wash up for dinner, honey. <laughs> and he's like, uh, fucking okay. I'm 38. Goddamn you. All right. right he doesn't say person. any of that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and as we're getting to know all these characters and these stories and everything, kind of the things that are building are... There's going to be the Monument to the Martyrs. There's going to be the wedding. And also, Papa Manzano is clearly very ill. You see him at a public appearance, clutching his stomach and bending over in pain. Yeah. And eventually he says, like, this public appearance is over. Everyone disperse and jumps in his limo and just tears off. <laughs> so he's very ill. Yeah. And John also sees Mona in real life, is just as blown away by her beauty and is in love with her. And then at one of these meetings at the house where we have all the Honickers and John... Franklin takes John aside and tries to make a be like some kind of cool guy about it, but basically tells him, why don't you be the president of the country? Yeah, because so I don't sound like an asshole. This is what I mentioned. He called him over earlier. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he's finally like, remember, I wanted to tell you something. Yeah. Please be president. (laughs) Yeah, because Papa Manzano had said, Franklin, you're going to marry Mona and be the next president and take over. And Franklin's like, 
why don't you do it? And we quickly learn that it's because Franklin is an asshole. Basically, it's that he like has no interest in running the country. He has yeah. no interest in actually handling anything. They call the situation a duffel. Duffel is yeah. a broken, honest word, meaning when the destinies of thousands of innocents <laughs> yeah. are in the hands of a stupa, which to me sounds Yiddish, not broken, honest, but yeah. a stupa is described as a fog-bound child, like a doofus. And those, We could be the, duffling hard right now, depending on your view. What do you, I mean, here in America in 2016, oh, yeah, yeah. we could be duffling a little bit. <laughs> well, that, because also in the run-up to Mother Night, a lot of people wrote us like, oh, Mother Night kind of fits. And we're like, yeah, it also fits all the time. And like, right. this stuff Vonnegut's does too. Vonnegut's <laughs> themes are going to fit a lot. Yeah, throughout. like it does fit and also always. But uh, I just want to point out, because it was so effective to me, yeah. I didn't tag it as a blurt because it's not a catchy phrase, yeah. but just the sheer character development of Frank how fucking much do you hate this piss ant's guts? Which is what Crosby calls him, a piss ant. <laughs> they start describing, he goes like, yeah, I know a little bit about you. People called you, he's like, you know, people made fun of me. They called me Secret Agent X9. Because <laughs> I was going to the hobby shop. They thought I was a loser. I bet they wouldn't have thought I was a loser if they knew I was really going to the hobby shop. I was fucking Jack's wife every night. <laughs> and it's like, hey, that makes you more of a weird asshole. Right. That you're a high school student ruining a middle-aged couple's marriage. And then this is what I love. The sheer self-centered bullshit thinking that this takes. The filing yeah. off of gears. He says, so I want you to be president. And he goes, Why? And it's implied that he's even defensive about that. He's like, you know, because he's like, the implication is, is it because you're a weirdo who no one likes and you wouldn't be able to be president? Right. Like, you obviously couldn't be president. Right. And Frank, of course, gets defensive and is like, look, I know my limitations. And that's a strength, not a weakness, I think, in this world. You need to know your limitations. <laughs> and he says, all these people thought I was a loser, but I was fucking that guy's wife. Quote, that's how come I never reached yeah. my full potential. Yeah. Oh, poor baby. What an asshole. You were too busy fucking this dude's wife. That's why your life isn't where you want it to be now. Yeah. And you act like it's not your fault or choice. It's like, it, that's my pro that's my cross to bear. Yeah. Is that I fucked this dude's wife. His excuse is even like that made me tired at school. And so I like couldn't yeah. focus at he school. Says, what was like, I supposed to do? I fucked this woman so much. I was tired at school <laughs> and my life has been hard ever since. And then he ends by saying, this is a quote. Yeah. Usually I paraphrase and make it sound stupid, but this is a quote. Come on, be president of San Lorenzo. You'd be real good at it, please. <laughs> <laughs> like, what a loser. What a loser. <laughs> and John describes the progression of this being offered to him as like that he internally accepts it before he outwardly does but also he's still kind of hesitating and franklin's like and he's like there's a catch right and franklin's like there's no catch and he's like no but there's a catch and he's like well there is one catch and john's like i knew it and franklin's like yeah the catch is you should probably marry mona because like it's prophesied that she'll marry the next president of the republic and i already yeah. asked her and she said she would <laughs> marry you if you'll do she it she said she'd marry whoever ends yeah. up being president she doesn't care yeah yeah and so then john is like oh my god this woman's fallen into my lap like yes i will i will become the president of the republic of san yeah. Lorenzo." so he goes and talks to mona he's awkward she's not because she's all into free love and shit <laughs> basically <laughs> she believes that yeah. bokanonism teaches her to do bokumaru with everyone she's it's, real into the foot play you guys it's a quentin tarantino dream yeah, directing right. job <laughs> yeah so like she, she's always grinding her feet against people in public you know and she feels that it's like doing a charitable thing to any citizen of the island 
to give them some like romantic sensual touch yeah. because it's calming and relaxing. She does not understand these Americanized uh, things about monogamy and selfishly hoarding your love. So right. he tells her, well, now that we're married, first of all, he does Bokumaru with her. Yeah, and it Vonnegut blows his mind. spends a whole chapter and a poem describing it as if it's an elongated orgasm. Yeah. And then uh, he says, now I only want you to do that with me ever again. She says, oh, then I won't marry you. I didn't realize that was a condition. Never mind. I hate you. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. Can I join your religion and do free love? And it's all fine. I take it back. And she goes, I love you again. She's like, yes, I love you. And he's like, I love you too. <laughs> yeah. okay. So he immediately uh, goes native, I guess they would say, or decides to adopt Bokanonism as his faith for the purposes of n- not having to stop touching the feet of this woman <laughs> is his main motivation. Then they go up because uh, he decides he's going to announce his presidency at the Feast of a Hundred yeah, Martyrs. Because why not? It's like the only big thing happening. You're right. And they say, we well, can just combine all the things in the says, one. I'll give a presidency, speech. marriage, feast. We'll do it all. Let's do it. And he says, and while you're, while you're at it, before the feast, which is tomorrow, you may as well go get Papa's blessing. And you're like, oh, I thought he was dead because you said I'm president. And he said, no, no, no. Dying. <laughs> Dying. <laughs> so why don't we go over there? You see him. Right. As he's dying, and he'll bless. I want him to know who, that it's not me, Frank. It's going to be you, and he'll sign off, and I'll be fine. And on his deathbed, Papa insists that science is the truth. Teach people that and get rid of Bokanonism. Really kill Bokanon. Really do it. And they're like, okay, fine. And he's like, last rites, please. And the, the Catholic priest comes in. A Christian and he's, priest named Dr. Vox Humana, I right. must say, which means the human voice. <laughs> yeah, and he's named after a piece of organ it's named that after struck an organ his stop. Yeah. because they've dynamited the cathedral in San Lorenzo, yeah. <laughs> and the organ just flew everywhere. But so then the Christian priest is like, great, I'll do last rites. And Papa Manzana's like, get out of here, you stinking Christian. I'm a Bokanonist. I want that. And of so course, they do on his deathbed. the Bokumaru. With he him. becomes a Bokanonist. Yeah. And he also says, I don't believe in this bullshit anymore. I want you to find Bokanon and I want you to really kill him. Really. I mean it. I mean for right. real. I'm not talking about the thing we do. I mean kill him. Yeah. And then he's like, I'm a devout Bokanonist. Give me the last rites of Bokanon. <laughs> it's such an interesting thing to muddle over. I don't get it fully. But that apparent contradiction is so fascinating. Yeah. I, well, I took it as the ground down gears thing, like you were saying before. Like, it's more of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to note that Papa Manzano has made his bed out of the golden rowboat of Bokanon. Yeah. The, when he shipwrecked, later on, a rowboat washed up on shore. They gilded it gold, and now the president sleeps in it, and it is prophesied that when it sails again, the world will end. Yeah. It's part of a... Yeah. Yeah. The, so uh, Papa's in it. He says, among other things, I don't believe that religion is the way. I don't believe helpful lies are helping. I believe in science now. I want Frank to be president. And Frank says, no, this guy will be president. And he says, literally, it doesn't matter who. I don't care who's president. I'm just saying, hey. please, science. Please do the science. Right, right. And he says, please do the ice. Ice. With the power of ice, you can do anything. Right. And the doctor's like, we keep bringing him ice, and he doesn't want it. <laughs> and uh, you know he means Ice Nine. Obviously, we glossed over this. We need to jump back because yeah. the night before, while they were all asleep, the power had gone out right, right. and then suddenly came back on. Just a power outage. But because they had a bunch of shit turned on, when the power came back on, the vacuum cleaner and the washing machine and the TV turned on all yeah, simultaneously. So everyone in the house freaked out and ran downstairs. And you know how you leave and you grab, I forget what he grabbed, but he grabbed probably the manuscript of this book yeah. or a family photo or whatever. And like wallet and stuff. Yeah. Angela and Newt each were only carrying 
an identical thermos brand thermos. Right. <laughs> and can we talk about brand loyalty? Because oh. this is Mother Night and Cat's Cradle now, where he has a character say, aspirin is the only thing in the world that works. <laughs> Robert Sterling Wilson, aspirin. Oh, yeah, yeah. And every single time it comes up, he capitalizes thermos brand thermos most of the time. A yeah, thermos brand jug. Yeah, it's very yeah. important. <laughs> and I didn't know if it was about like, oh, it's a subtle nod to like how the factory invades our consciousness, you know, fabrication. Right. Or he just, that's the word he chose. But <laughs> Yeah. But basically. And he just likes the specificity, maybe. That's yeah. the tip off to John. Yeah. That Ice Nine exists. So now in the present, we just need you to know, as Papa Manzano's dying, John knows that the kids, even though they've lied about it and no one knows this, took Ice Nine from their father after he died and have some. Yeah. They each a, have some in a thermos. And it's a thing where their father tried making a batch of it and he was like, oh, I made a batch of it. Anyway, I don't know, I'll destroy it later or something. And then their father dies. And then the kids have this like wacky sequence of events where they find it in a like frying pan and they get it on a dish rag and the dish rag freezes and then they give the dish rag to the dog and the dog freezes and then they're like okay we're gonna destroy all of it except this little chip we're gonna split the chip into thirds and then you learn that the kids each use their third of a chip to be like i have the power to end the world isn't that amazing and franklin used it to get a job on san lorenzo as like the the right hand man that's how the fuck when you're like how did he even end up here and how did he make his way to the top of the political ladder right he just showed up with a chip of ice nine and said do you want something that's even more powerful than the A-bomb? Right, Hi, I have this. Give me a cushy life. That's and the, all I want. And Manzano was like, great. Yeah. And then you also learn that, like we said before, Newt is able to have a relationship with the most lovely tiny woman in the world, but it turns out it's because she's a Russian agent, stole his chip Steals of ice his, and brought it to the Russians. So the Russians have it officially. Yeah. The state has it. <laughs> right. And then you learn that Angela was able to immediately marry a very handsome man in town, despite... Not being particularly attractive, as Vana gets described. Which, again, we'll get to Vana one, uh, but he's really, uh, he's like constantly calling her horse-faced and yeah, shit. Yeah, it's not that great. And he uh, says, and therefore she was not gifted any of the natural abilities with which one might land a husband. And I'm like, you only listed looks, yeah, but there's more. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But she is immediately able to get a handsome husband who doesn't actually love her and is like either an American agent or tied in with the American government because he's the president of a company called Fabritech. And so now the Americans have the, the third chip of Ice-9. And yeah. so you find out that all three of these people use that chip to just advance their lives a little bit. A little bit in a selfish, short-sighted way, and in every case, they regret it now. That's also yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. Zinka was full of shit. Her husband cheats on her and treats her like garbage, Angela, Angela's in Angela's yeah, case. Yeah. And in the case of San Lorenzo, it's going to backfire quite much more dramatically. Yeah. So, so, they do, yeah. so they have the big event on the day. And before that, Papa Manzano decides to die by finally getting the ice and consuming a piece of it. He puts it on his tongue, freezes. Cyanide style. It yeah. freezes him rigid. His whole body. The doctor comes to find John to say, hey, you're never going to guess. Papa died, and it's really weird. He's all frozen. <laughs> I want to note, because I think you might gloss over it, if, sure. uh, thinking it's unimportant. They are serving boiled albatross meat canapes. Yeah. Yeah, at yeah. the festival of the hundred martyrs, which is what's going on when Papa kills himself. Yeah. It's my favorite rhyme of the ancient mariner reference possible because he <laughs> oh, looks at okay. So the famous story from it is he shoots an albatross that he wasn't supposed to shoot, and the albat he wears it around his neck as a symbol of what a mistake it oh. was, and he's cursed from then on for having killed that albatross. So an albatross, oh. that phrase an albatross around your neck comes from that. John looks at all these 
albatross meat appetizers? And is like, I don't, really don't think so. And finally, he gets so embroiled in a conversation with someone, he eats one. Just thinking yeah. it's... An, and he immediately gets either vomiting or nasty diarrhea. It's yeah, not clear. super sick. And runs to the bathroom. And when he comes out, the doctor is meeting him to tell him Papa's killed himself. But the way he does it is he says, what is it? Around the neck. What is it around the neck? And I just, <laughs> I think that's oh, got to wow. be Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Because the world yeah. is about to end. Right. And he's got an albatross around his neck, causing right. him to have di- violent diarrhea. <laughs> and the island elaborately killed a bunch of albatrosses. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not cyanide. It's Ice Nine that right. Papa Manzano ate. And Dr. Schlichter makes the mistake of interacting too intimately with the body and also dies of Ice Nine. Right. So now there's two frozen bodies in the room. Yeah, and everyone's chewing each other out among the Honickers and John for being like, you were irresponsible, you were irresponsible with it. And then Franklin's just like, we'll destroy it, we'll just take care of it. Because you can, if something's frozen of ice nine, you can just melt it down and it turns back into regular water. The problem is a single atom of it can't escape the process. Right. So they decide to cut everyone into pieces, take a blowtorch to the floor to get any atoms that may have, and then... And then build a funeral pyre and burn everyone in it. And in the meantime, they're trying to do the 100 Martyrs to Democracy ceremony where a plane is going to shoot at a bunch of effigies of Stalin and Hitler and people like that. And there's a wa- basically a wacky series of collisions where, like, isn't it the plane hits a cliff and then the basically, cliff collapses? Well, Minton, the ambassador, yeah. gives an off-the-cuff, very appropriate, because why wouldn't it be? Because everything's predestined in this, speech about how war is not dignified. War robs us of our sons and daughters and... A heartwarming speech about because I guess he lost his own child to war, and you know he does the thing where he throws his cards away and just like teary eyed does the thing about war. Yeah. Then at that moment, a fighter jet honoring soldiers <laughs> <laughs> crashes into the platform supporting him, and he and his wife holding hands, waving serenely, <laughs> sink into the sea and just die because right. they're a dupras. And when you're a dupras and death is coming, apparently you just look at your wife and go like, "Well, very well then, it is time." Yeah, like um, we're ready. Is the implication? It. Yeah. So they just die. Everyone else goes, "Oh shit!" and starts running around. <laughs> yeah. And, and the mortar work is what causes the problem. <laughs> yeah. So all all that commotion and cliff falling and people running around causes. I think it's Manzano's like headquarters. This whole bedroom it yeah. splits in half. So that splits in half, and frozen Manzano in this golden boat is like flung into the ocean. The boat sails again. And then Bonzano flies free from the boat and John knows exactly what's going to happen. He just like closes his eyes for a second and there's what Vonnegut calls a grand awoom. And when John opens his eyes, all of the world's oceans are ice nine now. The entire world is frozen. All dew on the ground is frost. Yeah, all of the water is just ice nine. And furthermore, as you'd expect... The weather system of the globe is instantly fucked. He says, yeah. there are instantly hundreds of tornadoes as far as the eye can see in every direction, when scouring the globe and the sea I and also, just tearing the earth apart. And he, it's a great blurt because the very end of the chapter is the sky was filled with worms. The worms were tornadoes. I Instant. blurted that. It's Got it. Hemingway, dude. Fantastic. That's fucking Hemingway, bro. Yeah. And so then John and Mona flee to, it turns out, Papa Manzano had like a an apocalypse bunker, basically, and they flee to that. It, it was has a actually bunch of a repurposed dungeon Oh yeah, for people who were going to be hooked or whatever <laughs> that had no purpose because that wasn't real, yeah. Right. And so there's food and water there and beds and everything. 
And then they, John and Mona have sex and it's very, very weird. And Mona is very, that was a dumb thing to do about it. And then... Because she doesn't want to have a baby is her reasoning. Why yeah, would we do that now? Which is wise. And then they wait a couple days to kind of see if the coast is clear and then go back outside. And the, the tornadoes have lessened, but everyone seems to be dead and gone at that time. Yes. And I think it's important while they're in the bunker, there's a chapter called Mona Thanks Me, where he teaches her that plants exude CO2 and animals inhale O2 and exhale CO2, which plants use. Yeah. And she's like, thank you. <laughs> and I think it's a great vignette about how like, see, sometimes knowledge doesn't matter. Meaning like, literally it was pointless for her to learn that. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like there's these little digs right. at science or the idea that, well, science is always good and knowing more science is always good. And he's like, mm, save your brain space for shit like the desire to help people right. would be better than knowing the O2CO2 cycle. And in this case, of course, ludicrously so, because why even learn anything at this point? <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they go out and they explore. Yeah. From there, they find that in the meantime, the followers of Bokanon had gone and found him because he's easy to find and demanded that he tell them what to do. Bokanon told them, you should just kill yourselves because clearly God wants that. Well, he said, it seems like, yeah, we're a big believer in like doing what it seems like the universe wants. Yeah. Pretty clearly seems we're like, we're all supposed to die now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so they all consume Ice-9 and you find out Bokanon did this through a note that calls Bokanon a liar and a fraud and a horrible man. And it's written by Bokanon. And then... From there, Mona sees all this and says, I mean, clearly that was the right thing. Like, is there any reason these people should have lived? And John can't come up with one at all. And so then she's like, yeah, exactly. And she kills herself with Ice-9. Resi Noth all over again. Yeah, really. And uh, John's heartbroken. Then he gets found. It's kind of the mist, like, oh, almost immediately afterward. He's also super pissed off at Bokanon, as you'd think, for being hypocritical. Like, you're going to tell people to kill themselves, but you won't kill yourself right because he didn't do it <laughs> and bokanon says i don't take my own advice because i know that not everything everyone says is true like you can't take everyone at face value right so i don't always take my own advice <laughs> like, oh you tricky bokanon <laughs> <laughs> and uh john gets found by the one taxi cab in the country which is driven by the crosbys and also by newton by the way, which Frank has painted an American flag on. Fuck you. The world is over. Right. Or like, I it? it's that. No, it's Frank. Low. I thought it should have been low. Oh. But it said oh, Frank. I okay. And I think it's more. If it were low, it still would have been appropriate. But I double checked. And it is Frank. And I think oh, he's okay. just trying to say. Still, it's hammering home the Grand Falloon idea of like, who cares about countries now, dude? <laughs> right. And but also, I think Frank wants to be military, you know? Yeah, yeah. He thinks military. I guess he likes true. order. He likes rigid order and fascism. <laughs> right, right. And then uh, they live as what John calls a Swiss family Robinson, where they're like melting water and melting the frozen animals to eat them for sustenance. And, <laughs> the whole uh, world is your John, fridge, yeah. John finishes writing The Day the World Ended because it's this book. It's what happened. The book you're reading was written during this period. Yeah. So like, yeah. So you have the mind flip where you're like, oh, okay, now I'm caught up to, oh, this is happening now, supposedly. Yeah. Now it's a journal. Like, now he's writing as it's happening. Yeah, yeah. And they do that over about a six-month period. And then eventually John realizes he has no desire to procreate, but also there's not a woman who he can procreate with here. And then he's eventually like, I don't know, maybe I guess I'll just climb Mount McCabe, which is the one mountain and not even like a nice mountain on the island. <laughs> they say no one's ever climbed it. 
And he goes, why? It doesn't look that hard to climb. And he goes, oh, no, I didn't mean like no one succeeded. I mean, no, no one's just ever. Just no one feels like it. No one's ever thought, <laughs> oh, I'll climb Mount McCabe today. I don't know. Just no one has. <laughs> so it's a mount, It's the highest point on the it's island like, and no one's ever been there. Yeah. So I mean, he's like, it feels like even in the face of all this meaninglessness, it would be meaningful somehow to me. Or it's just a whim. I don't know. I want to climb up there and I want to plant something, a symbol. Right. And Hazel's like, Hazel, H. Lo Crosby's super American loving wife, is like, well, surprise, surprise, I knitted an American flag so you right. could go up there and claim this island Let's for do. America. And he's like, that's the last thing that has meaning to me. <laughs> like, that's the last thing I would want to put up there. But he's trying to rack his brain for what would be a fitting symbol, I guess, for like the epitaph of the world, you know, right. is what he's thinking. Meanwhile, all Newt wants to do is paint because they're all bored out of their minds and they just do whatever their hobbies are. Yeah, Lowe cooks a lot now. Yeah. <laughs> they just kind of... And then... So he, they scavenge art supplies is yeah. where I was getting, yeah. John is going to climb the mountain and then he's like, oh, wait, there's Bokanon over there. No, he's not climbing the mountain. They're scavenging art supplies. Oh, I forgot. Okay. And they pass them yeah. on the road. Minor doesn't matter. It doesn't change Oh, I, I mean like he's going to eventually. Like, that's, oh, right, that's right, right. The plan. Yeah. But they pull over because they see yeah, a live like, person. Oh, there's Bogan. And then they're like, oh, it's it's the one guy that we could possibly yeah. impact the story at this point. And surprise, then, surprise. And then the very last chapter is John goes up to Bokanon and he's like, what are you doing? And Bokanon's like, I'm trying to write the very last of the books of Bokanon. Because also this religion is just always being written as it's being practiced. Right. He's more like the Pope where he can keep adding new stuff and he's always yeah. infallible. But he's saying, yeah, so now I'm going to wrap up the story. So supposedly whatever I write right now is definitely going to happen, and that will be the end. Yeah. And, and he's he... like, whoa, can I read it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he just writes a little book where he says, if he were a younger man, he would climb to the top of Mount McCabe and lie down on my back with my history for a pillow. And I Well, would take... you skipped a very key clause. If I were a younger man, I'd write a history of mankind's oh, yeah, yeah. stupidity. Yeah. And then please continue. Uh, and I would climb to the top of Mount McCabe and lie down on my back with my history for a pillow, and I would take from the ground some of the blue-white poison that makes statues of men, and I would make a statue of myself, lying on my back, grinning horribly, and thumbing my nose at you-know-who. Yeah. End of book. Yeah. And <laughs> it's very safe to assume, because he is a younger man, and that's what he, he's looking for, some kind of destiny, and he believes in predestination. Yeah. John does that, and that's the end. Right. This book could be called John Dies at the End. <laughs> but that was taken by I some hack. I never thought of it that way. Jonah yeah. dies some at, the, at the surcease of this novel. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I like, and also uh, they find a poem presumably painted by Bokanon after the world ends, but before they run into him on the road that says kind of the same thing about God. It says like when you, I, I, I'm not going to make it rhyme because I'm not going to sc- waste your time scrolling through, but it's a poem, but it's like we all have to die someday. When we do, if you see God and you feel the urge to like be irritable and scold him and be like, what the fuck was that? Go ahead. He'll just smile and nod. <laughs> yeah, right. Like he won't disagree with you. <laughs> He'll just go, uh-huh. Yeah, no, no. Yep. Yeah, it was real fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. Oh, yeah, the Middle Ages. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can be like, why'd you do that? And he'll be like, you don't have to understand me. <laughs> That's another, I think, great message in the books of Bokanon. They give a great vocab word, the cosmogenesis of that religion, which means uh, what that religion believes about the foundations of the universe. They have Pabu as the moon and Borisisi as the sun and all this shit happens that you'd expect, like the sun gives birth to the earth and what. Yeah, but the part I like very simple. is when God then turns the mud into man yeah. and he gives the man the ability to wonder and man's first wondering is, what is the purpose of me to, why am I mud that walks? And, he, and God goes, oh, 
Does every, is everything supposed to have a purpose? I didn't know that was one of the rules. <laughs> and man goes like, of course, everything must have a purpose. Yeah. And God's like, oh, well, I'll leave that to you to figure out then. Right. Like, what if God doesn't know and doesn't care? Yeah. <laughs> that would be, what are we seeking then? <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite things in the book. It's, it's amazing. Like, yeah. Very Do reminiscent you... of the Tralfamadorian story. Yeah. The planet, you know, building the machines and then all that shit. Oh, like Sirens of Titan? Or like Yeah, no, I mean the story in Sirens of Titan, the backstory yeah. of the planet of Trafalmador, where the humans build a machine because they so desperately want to know what's the purpose of everything. And the machine's answer is, Why are you asking that? Essentially, like <laughs> there doesn't need to be That's a thing. Who yeah. told you that's like a requirement? Eh. You're yeah. walking around doing stuff. What did you want something else? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know, figure it out. What do you mean by meaning? <laughs> like when you really think about that, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And that's classic Vonnegut, yeah. Yeah. We kind of baked Kurt Blurt into plot time. Do you want... I think we have finished plot time. Do you want to do like Absolutely. our battle round of Kurt Blurts? And then, oh, yeah. Or let's, lightning run. Let's it's blurt it up. Because yeah. I find the blurts also often will illuminate little scenes we glossed over. Yes. Yeah. yeah so bl- this is a good time. I think I would... To blurt! The blurt! The Kurt Blurt! Gotta cut Junior. Turn my headphones up. Turn my headphones up. Turn my headphones up. I seriously can't hear people in my headphones. Yeah. With mine, one thing I want to pick out is I think this is, I mean, I'll find out if it's number one as we go through these, but I think this might be the funniest Kurt Vonnegut, or at least has some of the funniest lines, because there's some like real Jack Handy level, just crazy one-liners in this. And one of them is when John sees Mona being very, very beautiful, the way he describes it is, her breasts were like pomegranates or what you will, but like nothing so much. Full of so tiny seeds. Sorry. <laughs> Full of little juicy, real hard to open. Because the line is, her breasts were like pomegranates or what you will, but like nothing so much as a young woman's breasts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just Good really one, like, Great. Like beautifully stupid. True really of everything great. all the time. <laughs> I like Kurt Blurt from Newt's Letter talking about the beautiful canyons and arroyos around Cornell campus. Aren't the gorges <laughs> beautiful? This year, two girls jumped into one holding hands. They didn't get into the sorority they wanted. They wanted Tridelt. Yeah. You can unpack so much about that. Like the author thinks it's important or is ironically presenting that he thinks it's important that you care what sorority they wanted that caused them to commit suicide. That says so much about the writer. So it's like just an interesting turn of phrase to me. It reminded me of that Hemingway story, Baby Shoes. (laughs) You heard that story? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the six word short story. Recommended reading. Because it's just weighty in that yeah. little line of they want exactly. to try them. That's it. My other favorite handy thing is there's a part where John's on the plane and he's reading about the Republic of San Lorenzo and it gets pointed out to him that there's an index and you like learn Mona's entire story through her index entry. And you also learn yeah. that Way Mrs. Too Menton, long to quote, but it's Mrs. A good Menton is an indexer and like they make a thing out of like you can learn that Philip Castle is homosexual based on how he indexes and things like that. And it's so whole weird. But the entries for Mona that explain her backstory have like, there's this early entry where it's embarrassed by Rolla's national erotic symbol. And there's like seven citations for it. And then much later in the index tries to make self ugly in order to stop being erotic symbol, the Islanders. And there's a whole bunch more pages about that. Yeah. And it's just a really starkly funny to me that that's and a great technique to introduce yeah yeah she's also virtuoso xylophonist or xylophonist which we have mentioned yeah they have the only one i know of uh, being ruth underwood of frank zappa fame oh i have no idea i think is the world's only real virtuoso xylophonist i highly recommend (laughs) seriously i highly recommend looking up on youtube ruth underwood playing the xylophone it's quite amazing yeah but yeah i didn't know 
people were virtuoso at xylophone. We should mention, I think we've unpacked it by doing the whole episode, but no damn cat, no damn cradle. And then can I do another one? Because that's like the... Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm doing our, both core. of our works core here by saying cradle. that. Yeah. No damn cat, no damn cradle. Newt says it three times at the yeah. end of three different chapters. Right. And uh, you know that the last line of a chapter is weighty. So that's like the line of the book. Yeah. And I'm going to gloss over it because I think it's as simple as... We make these constructions. We all socially agree. This is this. God is this. And you're like, wait a minute. Fucking look at it. There's nothing like you describe there. What are you talking about? Yeah, we all call it a cat's cradle. No one ever questions it, but there's no cat and there's no cradle. What am I supposed to be getting out of it? Is is Newt's (laughs) question. And he compares it to various institutions. Government, no damn cat, no damn cradle. Religion, no damn cat, no damn cradle. Yeah. Although a similar one that's my favorite is Bokanon says, history, read it and weep. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a, great a good one. But for the one that is very personal to me, I wanted to shout out, he's sitting with a sex worker whom he repeatedly calls a whore, which I don't like, yeah. in a bar. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But the blurt is, we talked about the nice poor people who went to the electric chair, and we talked about the rich bastards who didn't. We talked about religious people who had perversions. We talked about a lot of things. We got drunk. I think it's a great lesson for young writers in the effectiveness of having a paragraph where the sentences get progressively shorter. Yeah. It's a really good one of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that I can see so many writers would have written that section, like trying to make them sound drunk as they fully spell out all those things. And, and most... Kurt's just like, we were having that bar room or, yeah. or like sophomore year of college conversation you have. And I think being trained by film, most writers who aren't thinking deeply would probably be thesis or clarity driven and start with, we got drunk at the bar. Right. And then unpack, here are imagery details of that. I think it's so much more interesting to say, here are flashes of imagery. The thing, yeah, everything we talked about. And then about. you're like, why, is, why am I thinking about these images? Because they summarize that we got drunk at the bar. And you're like, oh, that puts rambling. it all in context. I love being thrown into confusion and then brought back. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you hit a few just great core they're not just Cat's Cradle things, like they're Vonnegut lines, like people know. I'm picking and, some that are just good writing Which is lessons, great. Yeah. And this book is also where you get peculiar travel suggestions or dancing lessons from God. I think about that Lovely. line often all in life, just mm-hmm. frequently. And it's one of the great ones from him. Yeah, at the bar, they say also another knock at science and faith in science when it's not justified, because science obviously gets results. But people even have an unjustified faith. They're at the bar and the bartender's like... Didn't someone figure, I heard, I read in the paper, they solved the meaning of life. And she's like, oh yeah, there, there was a scientist. It was something about protein. And they're like, oh yeah, that is the meaning of life. Something about protein. And that's enough. I'm content to go about my day. Um, I had a lot of Vana what's in this. I thought it had some offensive yeah, we could, segments. Get a, we could do well, a few more blurts and then do um, that. Yeah, I still want to get through a lot more blurts, but I'm just having trouble there scrolling. Is, so I've, got, another I've got one another one here. It's when Jonah is at the tombstone shop and he's talking about that in the the um, cemetery. And Jonah says, it's a small world, I observed. And Marvin says, when you put it in a cemetery, it is. I wrote that one down. That one's Killer. fucking awesome. Just great. Everybody talks about research and practically nobody in this country is doing it. That's not an amazing line, but I thought it was incredible how the replication crisis is a thing we still talk about on Cracked. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he yeah. was talking about, apparently, That's it was a amazing, problem actually. in science at the time. 
in yeah. the 50s. It's kind of depressing, but... <laughs> yeah, he will, he'll randomly hit stuff. Like, like in Player Piano, he kind of randomly hit the thing of whether we should pay college athletes. It's yeah. Just, it was like, In oh, this, Bokanon randomly yeah. says, the hand that stocks the pharmacy will be king, which is incredibly prescient about yeah. like, wow, you really Great foresaw companies. how big pharma yeah. in your lifetime would become a huge player on the world stage. But it really didn't have anything to do with this book. It's a little like Andy Rooney tangent. Yeah, it's <laughs> they're like a, fun. Yeah. yeah. They're, like, by the way, I also noticed this. Yeah. <laughs> there's also, and there's one, it comes from H. Low Crosby. And it's, when we were talking about like why he's going to San Lorenzo and why he's going there. And when he's explaining why he wants to go to San Lorenzo and employ people there, he says, quote, the people down there are poor enough and scared enough and ignorant enough to have some common sense. Yeah. The same yeah. reason everybody was like, oh, Mother Night's pretty timely. Like that line's timely like yeah. this oh man i'm gonna barrage you man we should switch off but i don't even yeah. need to unpack some of these because i think yeah our, a lot, all of our hard. beautiful handsome smart listeners get it yeah but i have a lot i want to say they're describing uh how angela a person of soulless vapidity plays the clarinet <laughs> i expected something pathological but i did not expect the depth the violence and the almost intolerable beauty of the disease Calling someone's ability to play beautiful music a disease is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's also, I think I have just one more, but it's uh, another one of the great Jack Handy Schwartzwelder stupid jokes. John asks somebody in San Lorenzo, do people still die on the hook? And they reply, it's inevitably fatal. And then, yeah, he's and like, like, no, I meant do they no, do but, it? No, but like, do yeah. they use it? It's yeah, like, that's classic. This book has a lot of the, it's like, a very silly, stupid joke, but it's not next to a bunch of other ones, so it just hits you really yeah. hard and jarringly in a good way. One of Okanon's Calypsos, tiger gotta hunt, bird gotta fly, oh, man yeah. gotta sit and wonder why, 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 tiger gotta sleep, bird gotta land, man gotta tell himself he understand. Yeah. Sounds like a children's poem, but like reconceptualizing of, oh, is our seeking of the meaning of life in things just a function of our behavior, yeah. not a truth that we are actually being driven to find. Yeah, yeah. I love that. To use like children's language to get that across is crazy to me. He describes Frank Honecker as speaking with the timber and conviction of a kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Burn, yeah. Frank Honecker, burn. <laughs> and yeah, and when Frank says, I know my limitations, and that's maturity. Bokanon says, maturity is a bitter disappointment for which no remedy exists unless laughter can be said to remedy anything. We picked the right job. <laughs> I like that it's couched in also laughter might not help enough. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's so dark, but maybe true. As Bokanon tells us, God never wrote a good play in his life. Oh. About how everything yeah. in life seems cinematic for a minute and then something lame will happen that would definitely get cut in a movie scene. <laughs> and then Newt throws up, I think, happens right after that. And that's yeah, why he yeah. says that. He's like, everything seems so cinematic. And then Newt threw up. Oh, I think I also, I have one more blurt, but it would launch us into a next segment. So maybe do your last couple and then we'll do it. Okay, then my last one is, again, at Frank's expense, I do hate Frank. <laughs> Frank, in defending himself, says, you know, but look how far I've come. Yes, as a child, I was a bit of a dick, but I've grown up a great deal. This is after the apocalypse, by the way. He's like <laughs> admiring how his own arc as a character. I think I've grown up a great deal. Yeah. And he says, well, at a certain amount of expense to the world, yes. <laughs> but whatever gets you there, man. Right, right. If it took like, the world ending sure. for your story to end happily, then fine. Yeah. You, you may quibble with the results. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
What uh, segment were you going to launch us into? It yeah. sounded like you had big plans. I have. It's one more blurt. It's and a blurt. launches us into a segment called Kirk Cameo. Get out of here. We don't want you here, kid. But I'm Kirk. Oh, all right. Come on in. <laughs> so the Kirk Cameo in this book is just how much John is him. It's uh, throughout. And there's one line in it where kind of out of out of nowhere, there's a Jonah line. That's page 231 in mine. John says, when a man becomes a writer, I think he takes on a sacred obligation to produce beauty and enlightenment and comfort at top speed, which is a really nice line. But also it's clearly Kurt giving his mission statement for as a writer, you need to do this kind of thing. And then throughout the book, John's biographical details of I'm from German immigrants who moved to Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. And he also gives Frank sort of a Kurt cameo with the thing of building model airplanes and jerking off that we mentioned. Also the Cornell connection for John. There's just, it's not quite one of the books where it's actually Kermani get written into it, but I feel like it's his first one where he is directly a character by having a very loosely characterized narrator who's him. Yeah, it's less like a cameo and more like the most thinly veiled autobiography he's written yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or elements, obviously. Yeah. He didn't end the world, but <laughs> <laughs> And also, we're, we're going to rapid fire. We can go into another segment. Yeah, because that's about it for this. Right? Called Recurring Characters Update. We're coming back on you. Coming back on you. Like a bad plate of tacos. Recurring characters. <laughs> bad tacos or albatross. Can't have plates or whatever. I was like, all my voice, all my character voices are low voice Brooklyn guy. I got to go high for variety. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> what a tiny, cute animal that launched into the studio. So one of the recurring characters is Kurt, because he'll come up in his own books. But also, there aren't too many in this book. One of the key ones is Ilium, New York as a place, because you find that in Player Piano, which we've read. It's in Slaughterhouse-Five. It's in Galapagos. It's in some of his short stories. Also, in Cat's Cradle, Ilium is specifically home to the General Forge and Foundry Company, which is clearly a General Electric analog. But that specific company recurs in the short story, This Son of Mine, which is in Bagambo Snuffbox. And then the other place that's recurring is Newport, Rhode Island. Because as we mentioned, Bokanon, before he is Bokanon, takes a gig at the Rumford Estate in Newport, Rhode Island, which is straight out of The Sirens of Titan. And uh, he says of B, she thought God loved people in sailboats much more than he liked people in motorboats. That's such a Which good... Which is amazing. That line could have been in Sirens describing B. Yeah. Totally. They don't specifically say that it's B, no. but it, they say that but he built a doghouse for an Episcopalian lady's Great Dane, which is yeah. clearly B in Kazakh, so they're yeah. recurring too. And Newport will also come up in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater and Slaughterhouse-Five and the short story Any Reasonable Offer, which is also in Bagambo Snuffbox. And then I think there's one other recurring character, which is Francine Pafko, who I think is Ivana what kind of unto herself but is also a character who will recur as a completely different lady, essentially, sure. in Breakfast at Champions. And I don't need, I mean, I love Glengarry Glen Ross. I don't need everything to have female characters. I don't need, a, yeah. and I love stuff that's all female. But I would say it's a step back from Sirens in terms of, and even Mother Night, in terms of the female characters. Not that he, like, shits on womanhood or anything, no, but no. every woman is pretty much, like, a runner character who is an empty vessel. Yeah. I think is the phrase there, you used, and I like that. Yeah. They're there to 
create the plot things he needs to happen. That's, and they're, yeah. they're not <laughs> yeah. very deep at all. Uh, uh, they're objects, I would say. And I'm not saying... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not saying Kurt objectifies women. This is not like I'm coming down on him. No, but I no. mean, literally, he uses them as props more than characters in this yeah. book, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think we can, from that, go straight into... Another segment called Vana Why. Vana Why, Vana How, Vana Who. Because one of the big ones is, and we kind of talked about this on the Player Piano episode, and I just talked about it now, but is Kurt good at writing women? Is he terrible at writing women? Whoa, is whoa, he... whoa. I'm sorry. I have to interrupt, <laughs> which I do usually without saying I have to interrupt. But it just occurred to me if Bokanon was making Bee's doghouse, yeah. and then the world ends, do you see what I'm saying? But in Sirens, oh. there's already Cronus and Classic Infundibula discovered. I'm just realizing for the first time in my life that the Vonnegut universe doesn't work. I liked well, to it, think that all the books could have happened in an interlocking way in time. And uh, I don't think that's possible, given that some are sci-fi and some are modern day. Yeah. Well, especially the way some characters are kind of completely different people book to book. It's I think theoretically it's possible, but how could Cat's Cradle exist and have gone through all that shit in San Lorenzo with no one mentioning, oh, and did you hear about that guy who constantly eh. rematerializes and is founding his own separate fake religion Yeah. At, at the same time, you would assume, as Bokanonism is taking off, the Church of God, the Utterly Indifferent, is taking off in America? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think you can do like that great after hours and build <laughs> right. a unified Vonnegut world. I don't then, think it quite works. Worst of all, it would imply that after the events of Sirens of Titan, after all that sacrifice to meld the world into one galvanized people couple weeks later ice nine happens and the world ends right 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 like it's a real bummer, bummer. <laughs> for all them Whew, but, so and, back to vana what and also if it's all one <laughs> unified universe that means at least part of it is manipulated by the trickster god by kurt the, vonnegut yeah. jr who's real <laughs> in <laughs> like breakfast exists. breakfast of champions yeah but it's also like just chilling in new york and time quake but it's also like possibly arguably himself being controlled by a ray from tralfamador oh boy oh boy <laughs> this is gonna be a long boring after hours that no one watches someday <laughs> what was but that? yeah we're gonna crap on kurt Oh, yeah, because <laughs> the female characters in the book, for one thing, Francine Pafko, she works at General Fortune Foundry and takes dictation for the scientists there. At one point, she says, not only does she not understand the science they talk about, but she couldn't even understand it if she went to college. And there's also one part where Kurt describes her trying to think about something that's happening in the scene. And he says, quote, her smile was glassy and she was ransacking her mind for something to say finding nothing in it but used Kleenex and costume jewelry, which is such a, yeah. like, cruel it's like, comparable way to, to Malachi. make a woman dumb. There's yeah. a similar image where Malachi feels that way in Rumford's presence and ruffles through his memory as if it were a faded billfold, finding nothing of value. Yeah, um, yeah. But then so, a whole book goes on to deepen Malachi's character. Right. Francine Pefko, your only thing you know about her is... Right. I guess she's, she's dumb. She says she's dumb. She admits she's dumb, and everyone agrees she's dumb. Yeah, like, it's a, very insulting. And, <laughs> and there's all kinds of dumb men in this book too. But uh, sense about her. Miss Pefko was twenty, vacantly pretty and healthy, dull, normal. Ugh. That's literally 
like what the guy who invented the game would write next to a sex conquest in his little black book. <laughs> like, 20, vacantly pretty, dull, normal, 6 out of 10. Check. Here's her phone number. Yeah. <laughs> Just no good. Uh, and then about hat. the same character, that chapter, her smile was glassy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, That's she's the just line you were nothing. talking about. Yeah. And then what's funny is, it's like an inception of insulting women. <laughs> She says, you scientists, I'm just a girl. You scientists think too much. <laughs> and I don't mean to insult our Southern brothers and sisters by associating with Just felt right in the moment. But then he describes a big fat woman walking by who glares yeah. at the scientist because she's thinking that he is guilty of thinking too much. And he says, at this moment, she struck me as a perfect representative of all America who will go crazy if anyone does any more damn thinking. And so he's like, right. women so are stupid. And then this other fat woman came by and looked at her like, she's dumb too. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just not a good scene. Yeah. He immediately goes to a bar and is like, there was a whore there. So I talked to the whore. <laughs> yeah. And he like has sex with her and then feels just gross the next day. <laughs> yeah. He makes Angela a jerk. I know he makes the other kids jerks too. He does say Angela is the glue that held the family together. But because that was placed on her from a young age, she became a twisted, shitty person. Right, right. So it's like, yeah, and he doesn't really blame any of the kids for that either. So that's kind of kind to Angela, I guess, yeah. you know, through that. And then um, I do think Claire Minton is relatively nice and, and at least somewhat of a decent person. And also... And fleshed out. To show a group of people respect in your story, in my mind, is not to like make... They have to be good people who and right yeah but she's fleshed out and real feeling that's all we're asking for yeah yeah for a female character yeah and so that's a good thing and mrs crosby is probably the better of the crosbys and she's misguided and and really into the hoosier grand Falloon, but she's still like trying kind of her best and then mona is like this siren of titan woman who it seems like she's found perfect serenity by being completely devout into bokanonism but also i don't know if she's like a great character either right because it's this kind of fake idea i think and i don't know i certainly don't know what the man was thinking for sure right so it's hard to suss out what was satirical maybe he exactly agrees with the statement and that's why she's in there and you're supposed to glean the opposite exactly but she seems to me like this classic idea of a beautiful woman deep down really is happy just being quiet and lovely and beautiful and it's like fuck you give every human being the right to be like dark sometimes and fucked up and you know, like a complex human being. Yeah. The idea that women are happier that way, being untouched in these beautiful objects. You know, the put it on a pedestal thing. It's not helping anyone. Right. And it seems like Mona is the epitome of that. And it's almost as if Vonnegut's giving you an example of a person like that. And it seems true. Like she is wise because she did nothing ever but be Snow White beautiful and uninvolved in politics or anything. Right. And I don't like that. I'm going in order. Did you want to save all the Newt stuff for its own section, or can I get, say, a Newt one? We can get it. Yeah, I think I, I mean... I mean, we can keep saying woman stuff, too, but... I think we covered most all the female characters, and my... You can disagree, and you at home can disagree, but my general takeaway on his ability to write women in this is that he is occasionally successful with it, but generally not. I also don't know that he's trying to be mean-spirited. I think he just fails right. some of the time again that obviously glaringly. we wouldn't be doing this podcast if we didn't love him right so it's I'm complex yeah i am offended by the things that offend me it doesn't mean i judge him for it right. it also doesn't mean i think it's okay to be offensive it's you got to make your own personal decision yeah yeah so i think he isn't 
a total monster and doesn't totally blow it. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing also, this podcast right. if I was like, why would we be supporting him? <laughs> but he doesn't do like a totally winning job of writing women in this. No. Or nor have yeah. any of us. I mean, I'm just speaking for myself, but oh, sure. I right. would never be offended if I had a podcast dedicated to my own writing, which would be the vainest thing in the fucking world. <laughs> I sure as hell have a section where I looked for mistakes. No one's you look mistakes are interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? We work at yeah. cracked. We look right. at movies we love and we say that was wrong with it. Doesn't mean we don't like the movie is the point. Right. But this is fucked up. <laughs> Cause I want to get into some of the stuff he says about Newt. For sure. Who he says had to attend a school for grotesque children where he knew many idiot mongoloids. <laughs> yeah. A lot of problems right. with that sentence. Um, but also he has Newt when they're talking about their sex lives and how now that the world has ended, my libido's gone down. Newt goes, Oh yeah, I used to think about the best women a midget could want. I used to dream about women 20, 30, 40 feet tall. And I'm like, wait, you're literally implicitly equating. You think a little person, what they must want is the tallest because they're so jealous of tall people. Right. And he says. Uh, and it like turns them on. Right. The, the and he op- goes like, the opposite. what were you doing at Cornell? T- I was pre-med. And he doesn't say out loud, but he says in the narration, can you imagine a midget trying to be a doctor? <laughs> Yeah, easily, you dick. (laughs) Easily. (laughs) Back off. Yeah. Yeah. Some special hand instruments and you're set. You're there. And it's not all mechanical and manual, too. That's true. The job involves talking to people and looking at stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Near the very end of the book, Kurt uses Mongolian idiot and also uses the phrase jigaboo bastard. Jesus Christ. And, and so yeah. you're going the whole book without any super antique terminology. And then near the very end, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I bump on these strongly. Oh, boy. For sure. There's a lot more about little people, but I there's no point in life. We don't have to go through <laughs> it in minutia. Some of right. them are sh- like make me laugh out of shock. But, yeah. it's, but you know, in 100 years... People will be saying that about a fat joke I made when we're all finally right. sensitive enough that we don't body shame people. <laughs> or that I don't know if I've said this before, but I, I have a friend who insists that the fact that we all eat meat is going to be like yeah. repulsive to our. I don't know that it definitely will, be... but I'm like that could happen. I yeah, can see yeah. it. Yeah. So th- these things come up and will happen, but it's stuff that we've unawatted about. Yeah. I think next up, I would have a segment that we have I think covered the meat of, but it's a segment called the meat. And I think for this book, the key meat is whether Kurt is right and Bokanon is right and whether you can be sustained by FOMA or whether this basic thing of just living by falsehoods can make you function better and work. And Hats Cradle was the first Kurt Vonnegut I ever read. And it in many ways blew me away. It got me going on reading all kinds of different Kurt and things, but also I was definitely reading at this time with an eye to, I know all these things that rocked my world when I was first Mm. reading it for the first time. So now like how well put together of a novel is this? What jumps out to me on the second pass? But it's really an incredible piece of recontextualizing religion and humanism and caring about people and all of the things like that. Cause there's one point where they ask, Oh, is anything holy to the Bokanonis? And they say, man, that's it. So it's, yeah, just, it's a really a, a, an elaborate humanist philosophy. Yeah. And I want to compare it to a couple things in the interest of urging listeners to seek out those things. If they liked this, yeah. uh, there's another quote 
about the dynamic tension concept. They were all employed full-time as actors in a play any human being could understand and applaud. And I would tie that to the Charlie Kaufman movie, Synecdoche, New York. And that movie can be very dense and unrelatable. But if you went in knowing, or at least that I think, that's the moral of Synecdoche, New York, you will come away with my understanding of Synecdoche, New York. And it's a good treatise on that theme. And yeah, for sure. it's a short answer for me, but yeah, I think he's right on. I, yeah, <laughs> That's right. I think so too. I think, he's, I think it's correct. I am a secular humanist, which by definition, my belief is that a lack of faith makes things more meaningful in my mind. It, it always seemed illogical yeah, yeah. to me that blind faith imbues something with meaning to people, and I'm not trying to challenge that or take that away from you if it does. But what works for me in my life is knowing that I think I've chosen to imbue things with meaning, and therefore they then have meaning to me, and it was optional for me to do that. So it's so amazing that I did. Yeah. Or like, uh, I decided to not be a murderer, even though I don't believe in hell, to me seems cooler (laughs) or neater (laughs) than, oh, I'd be killing left and right, but you don't want to go to hell. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, So, I mean, that's obviously why I love Vonnegut. We mesh on that which is one of his core beliefs, I think. Well, and even even on the basic things of, like when the evolution, quote-unquote, debate was presented to me, I never had any issue, had any trouble finding evolution worthwhile as a theory because I was like, no, this doesn't make a creation myth less interesting. Like, no, right. this could have been divine. It's like, you never know. Like, yeah. it's like just knowing how the galaxy works or how science, it's like really exciting and, and doesn't take away from anything. To me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because also the alternate is to say, no, there's a knowable truth that is the truth. And that's what we're seeking is the alternate viewpoint. And I agree with Vonnegut on the other basic tenet that goes throughout all his books, which is that, no, you don't know. Like, you can know that. Everything is really able to be doubted and called into question. And even as a scene in this one where Felix, much like Socrates, challenges (laughs) Miss Pefko, I believe, or another someone else in the girl pool, which is just a terrible name for a thing that used to exist, the girl pool, yeah. asks one of the girls, I bet you can't say anything that's true. And she says, God is love. And obviously the point of the chapter is that's a really good FOMA, and that's a really useful FOMA. And yeah. Felix, the sociopath, is overlooking how incredibly useful and good and real that truth is. Even if it's not actually true, you should want to believe it. But since you're a sociopath, all he can say is, well, what is God? What is love? You'd have to define your terms, blah, blah, blah. And she says, you know, he's wrong, though. God really is love. And I love that because it's like, fuck you. Even if you gave me mathematical proof that that God is not love, I'll believe it anyway. That's what I choose to believe. So my answer is yes. Now you. How closely are you a Vonnegut? Yeah, I've been been saying the same, I think. Yeah, and it it really... In particular, because I, I was raised at least somewhat religious. Okay. My dad's Catholic and my mom's Presbyterian, and I sort of grew up in both churches. And I also just found the Bible and religion fascinating. Like, I wanted to know yeah. all about it, and I liked studying it. I thought it was very interesting. And I have liked a lot of different works of fiction in my life or works of philosophy that have been able to contextualize believing in things like that, which I don't think I really do anymore, but believing in things like that and contextualizing them with real life and with the world we're in, and in particular the way Kurt does it, funny and punchy and meaningful and brilliant. Yeah. Do you want to grade this one? I was going to say, that feels like a good time to get into <laughs> yeah. Vana grades. Another segment. 
I abstain from this theme. <laughs> <laughs> We've done this segment retroactively for the three previous books we did. Yeah. And this is tying into something Kurt did in Palm Sunday, where he graded many of his own works relative to himself. So he said, obviously, Shakespeare's better, but these are my grades relative to myself. Not obviously. I just saw a production oh. of Titus Andronicus. They, he had some clunkers. <laughs> yeah, it's the actor's fault. Now, yeah. Kurt gave himself an A-plus for Cat's Cradle, and in the list of grades of, of it would have been 13 books that he graded, he only gave one other work an A-plus, which was Slaughterhouse-Five. So he thinks very highly of Cat's Cradle, grading-wise. Disagree. i think uh cat's cradle is i'm not gonna put a letter grade to it it probably would be an a or an a minus but i'm not comfortable saying for sure but i want to say this it is the tightest cleanest most prophetic satirical piece everything's so clean and perfect it reminded me a lot of serious man which i felt was also like a little poem that's just a perfect movie the messages yeah. are clear if you sit down and uh, think about it for 20 minutes it's all amazing. worked out yeah and it's powerful and it all works however because it's so funny and such a dark comedy and so satirical, like I would say this about Dr. Strangelove too, I'm not as emotionally invested in the characters because they're not real people. Hmm. They represent schools of thought that are bouncing off each other with the possible exception of Bokanon himself. And the only reason I care about him is because he's, I care about Kurt Vonnegut and he's saying the things that Kurt Vonnegut thinks. But my point being like, it's a perfect book intellectually. I still think Sirens is far superior in terms of, I read this and was like, all these ideas are amazing. Everything's perfect. Laugh, laugh, laugh. I understand all your concepts. Good day, sir. I read Sirens of Titan, and I think things intellectually, but I also feel with my heart so deeply, and I cry when Rumford disappears, and I cry when Salo kills himself, and I cry when Unk lives his life without ever knowing his child. Like, I literally weep tears out my eyes. Cat's Cradle never even comes close to that level of emotional reaction. And uh, Mm. that's just my, like, Roger Ebert review on that. (laughs) Like, if you want to be emotionally invested in the characters, I don't think it's the one for that, or it just wasn't for me. It's a brain one. Like, it's all in your head space. There's no gut in it. That's interesting. I Because I think the first time I read Cat's Cradle, it really hit me gut level too really and it might be just because i found the intellectual ideas of it so major and so monumental to me because i think i would give this like my a plus plus i think i would okay. go this is my sirens is a plus it's amazing this might still be my top one but we'll find out I'd as we keep those. reading because i also sirens i can analyze and analyze and there's still stuff that confounds me yeah and i feel like if i figured it out i would have unlocked yet another secret and cat's cradle i feel like it was challenging, but I've fully processed it and I'm done. Yeah, that, Sirens of Titan that is a good haunts point. me. It's true. And I did this on the second read. I was more, it was a more clinical feel. It was like, yes, yeah. I, I see where this is going. I understand this is very well put. This is very perfectly done. Yeah. Which is not to detract from the fact that it's technically perfect. Yeah. I mean, like it's just perfection it's in amazing. terms of every other aspect. Yeah. 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 And I don't think he was trying to write a tearjerker. So that's no. probably why he doesn't. He would say, well, it's still an A. I wasn't even going for that. <laughs> but just for my money. I like to get to the end yeah. and cry because the main character dies. I, that's what I'm in it yeah. for when I a read a best book. ever book should have emotional <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that. That's that. Manic Raids. Quickie. And now that we've done that, we can move to movie time. Movie time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So there. Where's your messiah now? <laughs> it's movie time. For a second, I thought you were being very stern with me. No, no, no. <laughs> 
so this book, in terms of its publication history, should say that it was initially going to be a paperback original, and then they ended up working out a deal where it would be a hardcover. There was a colleague of Knox Burgers, Kurt Mayer's friend, named Sam Stewart, who was working at Dell with Knox Burger, and he signed Cat's Cradle up as a paperback original in 1962. But then in 63, Stewart changed jobs and moved to a publishing house called Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston. And so then he still liked Cat's Cradle a lot and worked out a deal with Dell where it would be a hardcover from HRW and then a paperback from Dell after that. And then almost immediately after it was published, it was pretty well reviewed. Terry Southern reviewed it in the New York Times. He's the author of The Magic Christian and other books. Southern mainly saw it as an allegory for nuclear stuff, which is totally fair, and liked it quite a bit. And also, according to Kurt's letters, he was approached in July 1963, almost immediately after it was published, by the director Frederick Wiseman, who optioned it as a movie. So even from Jump, there were people trying to make it a movie. Wiseman didn't end up making it a movie. but No other... one has, right? Or and... At least on the global scale. I've never yeah. heard of a famous version of it. As far as I can find on the internet, too, no one's made it a movie. The most recent big attempt was a company called Appian Way, which is owned by Leonardo DiCaprio, tried oh. to produce it as a movie around 2005. He's got good taste these days. He's doing Man in the White City, the uh, H.H. Holmes oh, story, Devil, in the, Devil in the White yeah. City. That's a great... I've all been waiting for someone to make that a movie. So yeah, if he tried to make it, good I'd be adaptation fine selections, yeah. Leo. Yeah, and then also we're in this age of golden TV and everything, and a guy named Noah Hawley is trying to develop it as a TV show right why, now. Why do I know that name? Does he, he have an existing show? He is, Brett gonna is tell us? best known for Fargo, the TV show Fargo. Brett knew that. Yeah, point Brett. <laughs> I did know that. <laughs> Great show. <laughs> Yeah, that, along with Fargo and some other things, that's his project right now. And apparently it's a little stalled in development, I would guess, because it seems very hard to make a whole TV show out of this book. That's true, but I do think, well, just the end part, because he'd fuck up every other part. But the end of the world would be a great Roland Emmerich scene. <laughs> oh, yeah, it'd be amazing. <laughs> As yeah. described in this book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you want to do dream casting? Yeah, I think we own? could do a little dream director dream casting. I also, have. Frederick Wiseman, he mostly makes documentaries, and they're very fly-on-the-wall documentaries. And oh, he okay. made an amazing one called Boxing Gym in 2010. That's it's just follows people in a boxing. Yeah, so like I think he's a very creative. He does that in theater, and he's very creative. And I think he might have done a decent job. But I don't nice. know if he'd pick me. I don't know if I'd pick him as my go-to. Yeah. And I forget who I was going to pick as my director. So. Oh, okay. I can go. Yeah. I want a caveat here, which is that I like cross casting, and I like inclusive casting, and like experimental casting. And I usually, when we do this, I'm thinking about just like the energy of the person I'm looking for. Yeah. However. This is going to be a super white cast, but there's a re. I have an excuse. Super white male cast. I blame Kurt himself and Wes Anderson because I think this is the one. Someone was saying Sirens of Titan. There's some argument to be made there, but I think of all the Vonnegut books, Wes Anderson's the best fit for Cast Uh, Cradle because I think he does detached, clinical, technical, deadpan jokes about depression. Yeah. Well, so with that in mind. I did a straight-up Wes Anderson, like if it was all his usuals, who they would be. Yeah, run through. So I'd have Wes directing. I was thinking Gwyneth Paltrow as Angela, Yep, because people already kind of don't like her. (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel that negatively about Gwyneth, but whatever. Yeah, me neither. I never get Um, it. Yeah, that's fine. Ed Norton as John, because he's nothing. He's just a protagonist. Yeah. And I know, oh, I'm going to get flack for that. I think Ed Norton's a good actor, but only at just being the guy. He's just the guy that's yeah, in the movie. He's yeah. <laughs> um, and he's so good in Moonrise Kingdom. 
Bill it's Murray good. is Julian Castle, motherfucker. Oh How my good God. is that? As the guy that says garbage and throws the painting. Yeah. Bill Murray cameo. It's like a medium to small part. Right. So good. Luke Wilson is Philip Castle. Oh, yeah. I like Danny Glover as Bocanon. <laughs> and he has Donna Wes Anderson, I think. <laughs> Adding my own originals. Now I'm like diverting from the traditional Wes Anderson cast, but I think John Lithgow is Dr. Breed. <laughs> oh, wow. This is almost an insult to her, but like Mila Kunis as Mona. Because if you're just oh, like, yeah. just going to be an object woman, <laughs> Mila Kunis <laughs> is pretty. Reginald Vell Johnson as Papa Manzano. Oh my God. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and then uh, Alan Cumming as Frank, I think would be good. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, Alan Cumming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's all I got. Felix, I kind of ran out of ideas. I was like, Colin Firth? I don't know. Someone. <laughs> yeah. As, yeah, be, as yeah. Dr. Honecker. We were also going to talk about Newt, right? Like, his casting Newt. Oh, I had Warwick Davis as Newt. Oh. But, again, yeah. to highlight, I know a lot of groups of people have a hard time finding movie roles, but it is a shame there's so few well-developed roles yeah. for little people, because I feel like our hands are kind of tied if you want to keep it true to being a little person. Which right. I do, if we were actually going to cast this. So I'd go Warwick Davis. But there's not a lot of options. <laughs> well, we were, we were talking a little before tape, and somebody, a few people, messaged us on Twitter and said, so Peter Dinklage, right? Before this episode was even yeah. thing. And that's and, and I assumed that would be your selection. Basically, <laughs> I, was, I realized it's probably him or Tony Cox, and I hadn't thought of Warwick Davis, but those are, the, those are kind of the people. They could use, yeah. There should be a few more people out there working. And there, there also might be, and I'm just ignorant and don't know it, but yeah. Well, in Game of Thrones, I don't say this, but I've seen a lot of other Dinklage roles where I was like, he's solid to good. He doesn't blow me away, though. And I actually think Warwick Davis really is a top-tier actor. Like, I, I don't know. He does blow me away routinely. Definitely. I think I mainly only know him from that Ricky Gervais show he did. But it's excellent. He's I mean, great. well, that's he's improv. Really yeah, but yeah, you yeah. never saw Willow? <laughs> no, I haven't seen Willow. Oh, boy. Well, that'll be our next podcast. We'll watch Willow 26 <laughs> times and we'll have 26 episodes where we talk about Willow. It's pretty good. It's also, it's not even my favorite. I'm like, it's good. It's a good movie. Yeah. You do have castings for oh, me? Yeah. Or directors? Uh, a little bit, yeah. So I, I found my note here. I, for very similar reasons, I think I would pick Adam McKay to direct it. Okay. Because I think he is very good at a funny movie that has a bunch of information in it and a bunch of people scrambling to make sense. And th I think the big shorts big short. heavy on my mind when I'm yeah, picking that, of course. but similar to Wes, <laughs> I think he has that ability. Not Pearl needs the rent, that funnier dive video. That's not <laughs> what you're thinking of. <laughs> not the part of Anchorman two yeah, where, yeah. <laughs> right. where the bus flips and a bowling ball hits him in the nuts. You're like, that really reminded me of the deep wisdom of Vonnegut. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> So I would, pick, I would pick that, I think, but it's, uh, Anderson makes a lot of sense and I almost just want to steal your Wes Anderson It's a good one. Entirely. I was really pleased with myself. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, I, some of those, I almost just want to use yours, but there's a few key. I think Bokanon, I would want to make Hannibal Burris. Oh my God, I think that would be a God, really good dude. time. Okay. That doesn't really work in my Wes Anderson one, but in any other directors, or in the McKay one especially, yeah. that's a brilliant choice, Hannibal Buress's Pokemon, yeah. Because we rarely see him, and he could... Uh, and he wouldn't act. He'd just be his loud, awkward thing that he does, yeah. Yeah, he would just be Hannibal. <laughs> yeah. Be yeah. Great. And I think for Jonah, John, 
because it's so definitely Kurt Vonnegut, I would pick somebody like John Hawks, who kind of looks like the actual person Kurt Vonnegut, and is also an excellent actor. John Hawks. Who's that is really guy? Who's just in Hacksaw Ridge? Is that who you're talking about? No, he's Saul Star in Deadwood, and he's in. Oh, he's oh bound him down. yeah, yeah, and Winter's Bone. He's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Hacksaw Ridge guy also, I, he just looks like a young oh, Kurt Andrew Vonnegut. Garfield? Yeah, I'm just saying he kind of looks Garfield like Andrew Garfield would Vonnegut. be great. Yeah. yeah. And who else did I have picked out? Still got that Mel Gibson stink on him, though. I don't want him around for a while. (laughs) I'm not... uh, Whatever, that's a different podcast. But I'm not down with people still making movies with Mel Gibson. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it's just very casually happening. For most of these other roles, I think I would take on yours if that's not lazy. Please do. Yeah. Let's make this And I think (laughs) Greenlit. Oh, I was thinking Rashida Jones from Mona. Excellent choice as well. Yeah. But because all she is is a sexualized object, don't you feel like we're kind of just like telling people what kind of actress we think is attractive? (laughs) Like that's all Mona has. I'm like, yeah, whatever actress you think is hot would play Mona. (laughs) Well, and also I I probably picked her because she's a mixed race person and Mona's a mixed race person. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's, so it's not race blind casting, but yeah. Otherwise, most of your, especially Reginald Johnson. That's what I meant is I usually want, I, I usually try to think of just a person's energy. But the racial issues actually exist in this one, so it seemed like you kind of had to keep it the way it was. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh, I also thought John C. Riley for Franklin. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I didn't think of Frank as that strong or imposing physically, but his personality is totally dead yeah, on. Yeah, if he would do the thing where he's kind of a drip. Where he plays it down and he's yeah. a drip, yeah. So that's that's the general shape of the movie I think we would do. It's I think we've broken it. Yeah. yeah, we did. Let's <laughs> we make the screenplay. Cool. And as far as works go, I think we can go to another segment called Related Reading. I'm your brother and I'm a book. It's Related Reading. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for creating a mascot (laughs) for this segment. He's related to you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, I think I can start with, there's one that we've talked about on Player Piano a lot and on this a little, but there's a book called The Brothers Vonnegut by Ginger Strand. It's a nonfiction work about... Kurt and Bernard, and uh, half Bernard's work at GE, half Kurt's writing and how it influenced it. And it's not just great if you're interested in Vonnegut. It's a really, really well-written piece of nonfiction. The the research is really seamless. And I think even if you didn't particularly care about Kurt Vonnegut's writing, it would be an interesting book to read. It's really, really excellent. So if you're you're way into this, that's a book to check out. Nice. So two more. There's short story because I always pull Ray Bradbury, because I find it very relevant. This is a short story called The Fire Balloons. It's from The Illustrated Man, and it's a short story about Martian colonization, because that's a lot of Ray Bradbury. And it's about Episcopalian missionaries who try to go to Mars and convert the settlers there, but they really want to convert the aliens. And so Ah. they get there and they say, what aliens are there? And they come across aliens that are glowing balls of energy. And it gets into some really interesting things of sin and what religious structures are helpful to people or not. And and by people, you mean entities, yeah. Right, and <laughs> souls and things like right. that. Right. Is the concept of punishment for sin going to help a ball of energy live its life better? Yeah. Exactly. That's the, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. the whole struggle that's of it. That's cool. And it's a really, it's a little bit old-fashioned in all the phrasing and the way people talk to each other, mm. but it's... Partly a uh, time period thing, and partly because they're the kind of people who are Episcopalian missionaries. Yeah, yeah. So they're, but it's a really great short story, like he does. Nice. And then the one other one. This is an amazing novel. It's called The Book of Dave. It's written by a British author named Will Self, and it's 
another one of my favorite books, just period. But it really strongly relates to Cat's Cradle because the Book of Dave in the title is a text that is written by a mentally ill London cab driver. And he writes an entire book about how unhappy he is with his life and the world and all the ways it works. And then because he's mentally ill, he has it stamped onto metal and bound as a metal book and buried (laughs) in the ground. And then the book is cutting half between the present day and the other half to a post-apocalyptic future society that has turned the one book that's left from our society, this crazy metal book, into their Bible. And so it follows two stories at once and also finds as much happiness or not as it can in both plots. And it's really, really quick, funny, fast writing too. If you like Vonnegut, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I got i I'll start with my non book stuff real quick. Yeah. I, uh, maybe I'm crazy, but reading Cat's Cradle, especially the story of McCabe and Bokanon and everything they're getting up to and what they tried to accomplish and how it panned out, <laughs> really reminded me of my favorite DLC of all video game time, Honest Hearts. <laughs> so if you like Fallout New Vegas and you never went all the way through and played Honest Hearts, which was one of the DLCs that I think came out last, the story in Honest Hearts is awesome and reminiscent of cat's cradle in some ways oh so there's a weird recommendation uh, a video game dlc uh (laughs) also we promised we'd mention we'd be remiss not to mention the ambrosia song nice nice very nice yes which we'll probably play a bit of And that is just a phenomenal, I mean, it was a hit at the time. It's a classic rock song that literally takes word for word one of the songs from this book and just made music for the words. And then on to the stories themselves. So you always bring up Bradbury. I always bring up Harlan Ellison. This time I got two Ellison shorts for you. One's longer than a short, I guess novella. One's called The Death Bird. It's about a creature who is destined to do particular rights at the time that the world needs to end. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's hard to describe. That's awesome. It's very experimental. And then a shorter, punchier one that's more like a traditional just sci-fi, and then there's a twist called The Executioner of Malformed Children, (laughs) which is about a future society where mutations develop where people have psychic and telekinetic abilities, but at the same time, they believe these mutations are developing because of the influence of an alternate dimension that's meshing with ours. (laughs) So creatures from the alternate dimension claw their way into ours. So the government uses these people who have these powers to protect us against the creatures that crawl through. And stuff happens. (laughs) And everything I just said is actually a lie, and you find out more. Hard to to get into. Very twist-heavy. Uh, We talked about briefly, uh, a couple episodes ago, Heinlein's The Unpleasant Profession of Jonathan Hogue. Oh, Super stiffly written and classical, like you were describing the Bradbury. But it's about a guy whose job it is, in a religious way, to go about ending the world. I I love those. There's another book called The Traveler in Black, and I don't even remember the author's name, but I'll throw that out there. I love books about supernatural entities doing the rounds, shutting the lights off because the universe is ending. A Traveler in Black almost sounds like a Dark Tower thing. It's Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good. It predates that, but it's not as good as that. It's by an author named John Brunner. 
Yep. Thank you, Brett. John with Brenner. With the Google save. John Brenner, the Traveler in Black. I can't even believe I got the title right. And then lastly, I want to shout out Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which you may yeah. have read. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Just a good dystopian, the way society can go wrong based on beliefs. It's kind of the opposite. It's like Bokanon gives you lies that are helpful. And uh, yeah. it's the more common instance where the society gives you lies that are helpful to them, but not to you. Uh, <laughs> Handmaid's Tale. And then The Giver by Lois Lowry. Oh. Which yeah. I just want to shout out because the movie came out and you made me realize there could be people listening to this who aren't aware that it's a book and saw the movie and think The Giver sucks. But yeah. The Giver doesn't suck. The Giver is deep and thought-provoking and an incredible tale about what we choose to believe as a society, how it affects your your actual physical perception of the world around you, yeah. and it's a great story of despair and everything slowly dying right. for children. <laughs> yeah, and I, I read and the it book young. is great. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it worked. It totally worked, although were you young enough to think that it was a happy ending? I don't remember, actually. The ending seems happy on its surface, but if you are older than 12, <laughs> you can read into the subtext very slightly and be like, oh, no, I know what it really happened, um, if you know what I mean. I don't remember, yeah. Well, I just suggested people who haven't read it read it, so I'm not yeah, going to spoil it, it. Check it out, yeah. But my interpretation of the ending is very dark, and I think I'm right. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Those are mine. Do you think we have time for a vocab blast through, or No. Well, we hit most of the book and honest words, but if you want to hit those. Yeah, yeah. I do. I want to blast through. Go for it. All right. Presenting Michael's shitty segment. (laughs) Vocab quiz. Everyone, please hand your papers to the front. No, it's shitty. (laughs) I just want to point out fucking great words, because I love great words and I love learning new words that were in this book that I've never heard before or since. Dulcitude. I've probably heard before, but it's a good word. Cosmogony, we mentioned. When they describe the castle, he says, Vines and bird nests clogged the crenels, the maculations, and the balustrariae of the castle. <laughs> balustrariae. Fucking awesome word. Bartizan is another part of the castle he names. Whoa. Reticule is the name for a lady's handbag I didn't know. Oh. He describes a torture device called a pettywinkus, which I googled and it gets no results, so I think he made it up. <laughs> I'm out! <laughs> He's the best. <laughs> yeah. Very Shakespearean. And there's also, I don't necessarily recommend it, but as part of prep for this, we were like, let's consume the Cat's Cradle-based things out there. There's an album called Ice Nine Ballads that Kurt Vonnegut was involved in the creation of with a guy named Dave Soldier. And it's a whole album of music based on essentially the text of a lot of the calypsos and Bokanon sayings in the book. And then there's also like a radio play for a half hour at the end of it. And it's a whole thing. I didn't particularly love listening to the music, (laughs) <laughs> but I'm glad somebody made a thing. Yeah. And uh, in particular, some of the Calypso tracks and the very first track, which is Bokanon's last book, are not bad. If I were a younger man, I would write a history of human stupidity. And I would climb to the top of Mount McCabe and lie down on my back with my history for a pillow. And I would take from the ground some of the blue-white poison that makes statues of men. And I would make a statue of myself lying on my back grinning horribly and thumbing my nose at you-know-who. So you heard, you listen to the album and your review is, look, we all like Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I'm glad you do too. Uh, it's music. <laughs> yeah, but it, I do think it's interesting that Kurt Vonnegut was directly involved, involved in the creation cool. of it. So if you're looking for every piece of Kurt you can get, yes. that's a thing you worked on. 
And you can look up Yusho sent me last night a letter he wrote to Ambrosia, the band we mentioned, yeah. where he's super excited I, like a fanboy about the, like, I heard our song. He calls it our song. Yeah. Like, I heard our song on the radio today. It's number nine on the charts, guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> I do that song. The lyrics are the 53rd Calypso of Bokanon, but it's also a good song, I think. It's really enjoyable. It's the, like 70s rock. Yeah. The solos rule in that song. Yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> and Kurt wrote them a letter. He said, I was at my daughter's house last night. The radio was on. By God, if the DJ didn't play our song and so on. And he says, and I myself am crazy about our song, of course, but what do I know and why wouldn't I be? This much I've always known anyway. Music is the only art that's really worth a damn. I envy you guys. So I Kurt think, loved it. I think every creative person who doesn't make music envies people who are gifted at music. Yes, I, sure. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> Wow, I think it's time for a segment that'll kind of take us toward the end, which is Vonnegut News. <laughs> Grim silence. <laughs> we have a couple brief, Just the theme. brief news items because they're either little things or what you do with them. But one of them is that Jennifer Lawrence was talking about Welcome to the Monkey House in an interview. Jayla! Yeah. All right. She is dating Darren Aronofsky, uh, the director. Darren and- and vanity fair asked her if she what her biggest irrational fear is and she said i don't know if you've ever read the kurt vonnegut short story where everyone has to take these pills that make your private parts feel like wet sponges and then nobody can have sex and no one can procreate and so by the time i'm older and i'm like i think i want to be a mother they're like you can't your private part feels like a sponge and apparently she's afraid of missing out on motherhood, but she specifically refers to the title story from Welcome to the Monkey House yeah. as like her frame of reference for it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a study. Like, you know, what's the title? It's like uh, Pussy Sponge or something. <laughs> Rubber Dick. What's the name of that story? Right. Can't feel no crotch. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought just the phrase that is in this book. That this even existed. A school for especially grotesque children. Doesn't that sound like the worst, like, Harry Potter knockoff franchise you oh, ever heard? Right. The school for grotesque children. Right. <laughs> Miss Peregrine's home for, for the worst for the grotesque. children. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Miss Peregrine's little puke-em-ups. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Mm, boy. Um, we got more news? Also, yeah. <laughs> there's two more things. One, they, the University of Vermont, some scientists there did a study recently that they tried to actually build on Kurt Vonnegut's rejected University of Chicago thesis that all stories have very simple structures that you can graph. Like, there's all basic ones. And they used Project Gutenberg as a source to try to put that through an algorithm, mm-hmm. essentially. And they seem to think he was generally right. You can go Google that stuff. If you Google University of Vermont, Kurt Vonnegut story structure, you will find what you're looking for. But isn't that also, I mean, or I don't know who came first, but Joseph Campbell, that kind of thing where it's like, look, you can only do X number of things. Hero goes up the tree. Someone throws rocks at them. Hero comes down the tree is one. (laughs) Well, and that's actually a Vonnegut history thing. He tried to get a master's in anthropology at the University of Chicago. He submitted two theses that they rejected. The first was he tried to connect the Native American ghost dance movement to Cuba's painters, which we talked about player piano. And the second attempt was these are how stories are graphed. This is how it worked. It's like the arrowheads or pot shards of a culture of their stories. (sighs) And they turned that down. And then he, later in his career, like when he taught at Iowa, 
he didn't have that University of Chicago degree because he never finished it. And so he was the lowest paid faculty member at Iowa because he didn't have an advanced degree. And then after he worked there and after Cat's Cradle was published in the early 70s, the University of Chicago was like, Cat's Cradle is your thesis. We'll take it. Here's your degree. And Daniel. it was too late for him to make any money oh, off of God. it. And so he has a line where in, I think it's Palm Sunday, where he says the University of Chicago can take a flying fuck at the moon. Yeah, <laughs> that's about them. Yeah. So he's the take most a resentful of rolling donut. Of, yeah, yeah. Why don't you go fuck a rolling donut? Why don't you take a flying fuck at the moon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that so they're working on his academic idea right now. And then the other story is there was a God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater musical in New York that we were not able to see, but mm. they're going to make a cast recording. I didn't recording. even hear he sneezed. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, boy. The look of disappointment oh, in your I eyes is how real. To, I was like, how do I save it? And I'm just not, not skilled enough. No. And I stink. You could have um, thrown a FOMA out there. Hey, throw me a FOMA. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. Um, I was thinking that's funny in my right. head. <laughs> All I do, I'll tell you, I really want to do what he did with stories with comedy. Don't you? Like, Oh, like there's I structures? Want, I would love, when, I, when my career actually justifies that I could do it and it wouldn't seem super self-centered, like when I'm 60, I mm. would love to write a little volume of like, here are the things I have learned. Here's how you can, contr- I mean, for jokes, oh, joke formulas. Yeah. yeah. Here's how you contrast two highly contrasting thought elements that are iconic of opposing forces oh, and then yeah. give someone permission to laugh in the next moment. <laughs> like, I love those Just comedy Just all the rules. mechanics. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so they're going to do a cast album of that show. So maybe we can like Hamilton album it and experience nice. it from afar. I don't know when that'll come out, but that is going to also be our next episode is going to be the novel god bless you mr rosewater so and that'll come out shortly after the new year please read along if you'd like to please reach out to us on the internet if you'd like to be involved facebook.com slash kurt guys and at kurt guys on instagram and twitter and then also soundcloud slash kurt guys there's comments there too nice thanks for hanging out with us guys thanks for cats cradling Woo.